Welcome to our board meeting. Welcome to the regular board meeting of the Shawnee Mission Board of Education, February 26th, 2018. Please join us in the Pledge of Allegiance. I pledge allegiance to the flag of the United States of America and to the republic for which it stands, one nation, under God, indivisible, with liberty and justice for all. Well, thank you everyone for being here today. We've got uh, a lot on our agenda and we appreciate all the participation, but I, I want to at least uh, ask for a, a show of hands from one of our visitors and any of those that might be here because of a, uh, a requirement or a bonus for a class they're attending or maybe a merit badge they're working on or anything. You want to raise your hands? Thank you for being here. And with that, I'll turn to Dr. Southwick with the interim superintendent update. Yes, always um, a fun time to go through the things that are happening in the Shawnee Mission School District, particularly the accolades that we have for programs and staff and our students. So have a lot to share tonight. So if you'll bear with me, that will be great. And, uh, okay. And we're going to, we'll uh, run the program from over at the podium, I guess. PowerPoint. <clears throat> there we go. Okay, the Great Kindness Challenge began. Uh, we talked about that in our January and our December meeting, but it started on January 22nd. At the last board meeting, we kicked off the Great Challenge, Kindness Challenge Week. While we focus on kindness every day, it's terrific to see the tremendous response to this district-wide event. Our community participated also uh, with police officers, firefighters, community partners, parents, city officials, and of course, our board members. Many small acts of kindness added up to make this a significant impact on the lives of our kids. Some examples of that, Shawnee Mission West, students shared kind words through the Take What You Need note campaign and left kind words on students' cars. At some buildings, student staff created posters, wrote encouraging notes that were shared with uh, another school community. Several cities made proclamations <coughs> as a way to promote the kindness throughout our community, as did our Board of Education. We estimated together more than a million kind acts were completed during that week, so it is a great testament to the event. Shawnee Mission North debate coach Ken King was inducted into the Kansas Debate Coaches Hall of Fame. Ken King has been coaching debate at Shawnee Mission for 18 years, the last five at Shawnee Mission Northwest, which is his alma mater, where he debated for four years. Congratulations to Ken for this significant recognition. Shawnee Mission High School students uh, were winners of the Future Art Invitational. The Friends of OP Arts uh, selected three Shawnee Mission students as winners for their artwork, which has been on display at the Tomahawk Ridge Community Center. Best of show was Italian soda bottles by Nina Kokolakov, uh, South, Shawnee Mission South. Second place, self-portrait by Catherine Cunningham, Shawnee Mission North. Third place, Lion by Amazia Williams, Shawnee Mission South. The awards were selected uh, by the Arts at the Center Committee, which is a volunteer group. We're extremely proud of these students and also the, the teachers that support them. 
Our Broadmoor Bistro continues to be one of the best experiences, not only in our school district and our community, but across the metro area. Uh, it was rated best overall restaurant by Open Table in January. These categories included the best overall restaurant, best food, and best value by Open Table. Each month, Open Table, a restaurant reservation site, analyzes more than 400,000 new dinner reviews. Congrats to Chef Broussard, Hoffman, and Dallin for their work and continued success. And thanks to our students that really, if you have not experienced the bistro, I encourage you to do that. Um, it's an awesome experience, and we owe that to the great talent of our students. Shawnee Mission North Navy Junior Reserve Officers Training Corp wins the regional championship, I will say, again. This is their 12th straight area ninth regional championship win. Shawnee Mission North Corps will make it 13 consecutive appearances in the national championship where they will compete in Pensacola, Florida in April. The victory extends Shawnee Mission North winning streak to 129 consecutive wins over area nine teams. Their 2017-18 record is 41-0. and zero. Congratulations to Chief Warrant Officer Dennis Grayless, who leads this fine group of young men and women. Um, their program's absolutely second to none and one that I know uh, we're very proud of and know you, sh you, you are too. Shawnee Mission High School students are 2018 Shooting Star finalists. The Arts Council of Johnson County honors high school students for achievement in literary, performing visual arts, and recognition in college scholarships. We had 20 finalists in literature, production and education, or production and design, strings, theater performance, 3D art, 2D art, voice, classical, winds, and percussion. All five of our high schools, east, north, northwest, south, and west, <clears throat> were represented in the, with the winners. Thanks to also, again, to the staff that support these students. Important information, this is a little bit of, this is my public service announcement for the night. Pre-kindergarten enrollment began February 16th. Pre-K will be offered in 17 elementary schools in the 2018-19 school year. Uh, for qualifying families, the program is free. There's also this year will be a tuition-based pre-K option. Spread the word for anyone who might have a preschooler at home. Uh, this is an extremely important program as we ready our, our students to come to kindergarten. So, um, again, please pass the word. Shawnee Mission West students won an award for aspirations in computing. Lauren Dowdell and Aaron Smith, seniors at Shawnee Mission West, are winners of the National Center for Women and in Information Technology Award for aspirations in computing. This organization recognizes female high school students for their computing-related achievements and interests. Lauren was recognized for organizing a coding club at school and her own participation in the Girls Who Code organization. Erin has been an active participant in the hackathon. I hope we're hacking the right things. Um, I'm sure we are with Erin. Hackathon event to help computer programmers build their skills. In addition, she sought out external program and mentorships and organized local activities to share her computing knowledge. Recently, um, 13 Kansas Teacher of the Year honorees toured the Shawnee Mission School District on January 24. The tour included 
a stop in several buildings in the district, including the home of schools of Shawnee Mission School District's 2017-18 Kansas Teacher of the Year honorees, Travis Wallace, a science teacher at Shawnee Mission Newark, and Patty Ingram, a sixth grade teacher at Rushton. The teachers also toured the signature programs and classrooms. And we look forward to one of our entries being the Kansas Teacher of the Year next year. 17 Shawnee Mission School District students have been recognized as finalists now. We uh, notified uh, that we had semifinalists and now we have 17 finalists in the National Merit Program. High school students entered the National Merit Program by taking preliminary SAT and National Merit Scholarship qualifying tests during their sophomore year. The 17 finalists attend Shawnee Mission East, Shawnee Mission North, Shawnee Mission Northwest, Shawnee Mission South, and Shawnee Mission West. These students now have the opportunity to advance in competition for the National Merit Scholarship Awards worth $32 million. These will be offered this spring. The test serves as an initial screen for approximately 1.6 million entrants each year. Congratulations to these accomplished high schoolers. A little bit of a construction report. Um, Lenexa Hills is ahead of schedule, as you know. It's our brand new elementary school that will set on the west side of our community. In Lenexa, uh, I will tell you we have no option because we will have that building open for students because we'll have no other place for them to go. So we're glad to hear that Lenexa Hills is on schedule. Brookwood, we're also um, on 103rd Street replacing the old Brookwood School. And those students, as you know, have moved to Indian Creek and we're scheduled sometime uh, late winter, early spring of 2019. Um, and the Aquatic Center now is under full construction. They're out there working every day in the city center square in Lenexa with that project being ready to um, open up in the summer of 2019. Great partnership between the uh, Johnson County Parks and Rec, the city of Lenexa and the school district for us to bring that facility online uh, which will serve our entire communities. And now it's time for, I think, uh, what has come one of, the, one of the great events that we have as we start our, our meetings. And this is where we, for those of you that haven't been in a meeting, we have an opportunity to recognize some of our all-stars in the district. Uh, we've had a saying over the last couple of years that all means all, and this award really is about the all-means-all-star. So tonight um, we have Judd Rimmers, a custodial supervisor for the district that will introduce our first All Means All Star Award winner. Thank you, Dr. Southwick. Uh, I'm extre extremely pleased to introduce Tomahawk Elementary Head Custodian Don Gordon as Shawnee Mission School District All Means All Star. Don joined our staff during the 2015 school year and immediately made a positive impact in the building and community. Don not only maintains an excellent school and campus, but has formed lasting relationships with the students and staff at Tomahawk. His true public service dedication embodies the district's vision of all means all. Whether during breakfast, lunch, or moving through the halls, Don is often seen taking that extra moment to ask a student how their day is going or assist a staff member with a problem. It is also common to see Don helping with after-school and weekend events, such as the Tiger Trot or PTA Carnival, on his own time. And even when the basement of Tomahawk is flooded or due to construction, ceiling tile has yet to be installed two weeks prior to the start of school. Don always maintains his trademark smile and can-do attitude. I think we have a video.
So the first time I heard about the All Names All Star Award, I immediately thought of Don Gordon. I thought this is a guy that epitomizes what we want out of the folks who work with our kids. Besides being super gentle and caring and just a real, real bear of a guy with the kids, he's really, really a great manager of the building. You know, he's just really, really done a great job of making the building look great, making the building operate in a, in a well-oiled manner. And I tell you what, he's just been a real tremendous asset to the school and to the school district. Thank you, Mr. Don's not just a custodian. He is, you know, kind of just the eyes and ears of our school, and the kids love him. We really appreciate him as, as a fellow educator, not just a custodian. He's very caring and kind, and he always is telling jokes that will make your day. <laughs> yeah, I see him in the hallway, and he always has a smile on his face. I, I don't think I've ever seen him be grumpy, so he's always upbeat and positive, which is fantastic. You know, Don truly is a, a tireless worker. He is uh, working all day long to assist students and, and staff however he can. Mr. Don is one of the greatest people I've ever met here. He's always trying to be involved with the kids and going out to say hi to us at recess and at lunch he always tells us the funniest jokes like, are you going to eat those chips or can I have them? You're doing great, guys. He helps us of which things <laughs> go in the trash, recycle, and compost. He's really nice. He helps us open our um, chocolate milk. <laughs> Way to go, Don. I really appreciate being able to work with you. Congratulations, Mr. Don. Thanks for all you do, Mr. Don. Congratulations and all does mean all. Thanks for everything you do, Mr. Don. Congratulations, you mean everything to us, and I can't think of a more deserving person at our building. Don, I consider you a friend, a colleague, and a real treasure in Tomahawk Elementary School. Thank you, Mr. Don. Don, can you please come to the front? second award tonight, uh, we have Michael Orr here, Principal Krista McAuliffe Elementary School, to make uh, his introduction. Good evening. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here today. Uh, before I introduce uh, our award winner, I just want to say thank you to the board and thank you to Shawnee Mission School District for offering this as an option. It's, uh, it's great that you stand behind all means all and we have somebody every month or two people who can come and and be honored so this is a great a great honor i know there's there's some excitement at krista mcauliffe because uh we do have the february all means all award winner uh, mrs jill Ryder. jill has been teaching at krista mcauliffe for the past six years uh it's it's been a privilege not only to work with jill but i also 
I have to say, my first ever hire at Krista McAuliffe was Jill Ryder. So uh, six years ago, I hired Jill with the understanding that she was an all-star at that point, and um, she has done nothing to disappoint. She taught sixth grade for the first five years, uh, specialized uh, with our math program. She then has moved down to fifth grade this year and has continued to specialize with the math program. Uh, without giving away a ton of information that I'm, I think will probably be in the video, Jill, I think her all-means-all-star qualities include going the extra mile before school, after school, beyond her regular school day to get kids what they need. So um, I want to introduce Mrs. Jill Ryder as the McAuliffe All-means-all-star. It's pretty It's pretty tricky, okay? When a child walks into Jill's classroom, the first thing that that child knows is that they're welcome there. She works very hard. Well, just how like she cares about each student and making sure that they're getting the education that they need. Sometimes when you don't understand it, math can be a little frustrating and hard. She's really good at explaining it, so it makes it fun when you understand it. Jill is always willing to say, let's try this, or why don't I stay after school and I'll work with them. And so that's where I really see her creativity and going beyond, and that's what really sets her apart. It's like she's like a dictionary and a book that knows everything. If I don't understand a problem, she'll um, like work out like a different problem that has like the same type of algorithm to it, and it's very helpful. She's a very selfless person. She's really, truly looking at doing what's best for each individual kid by building relationships, knowing the curriculum, and then getting people what they need. If we do something wrong on our test, we always get a chance to correct it. So she works with kids one-on-one, -on -one, that small group of three. I like one-on-ones. It's quieter. She teaches it your way, and you get things done faster. But there's something about Miss Ryder that just, it makes it way easier for me, and like, she's so nice to be with. I think she's a wonderful teacher. She has shaped me as an educator. Great job. She is a beacon for what we can all become. Yep. good to me. say thank you to um, the board, to the district, to Mr. Orr, um, who has let us know from the beginning that um, if something was inconvenient or if it wasn't what the status quo was, that that didn't matter. Um, we were to always put what is best for kids first. Um, and thank you to my team because they're who they put up with me every day. So. <laughs> thank you. And that concludes my report. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Southwick. 
Uh, with that, we move on to uh, agenda item C, which is our special presentations. And our first item, number one, I invite uh, the chairman of the Board of Commissioners for Johnson County, Ed Eilert, to speak on dark store theory. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. President. Uh, let me introduce some folks who are with me this evening. Uh, County Appraiser Paul Welcome and uh, First District Commissioner uh, Ron Schaefer, glad to have their support. And let me say at the outset, some of you know I started my career as a high school teacher, and my last year of teaching was at Shawnee Mission East. Uh, the district was a great district then. It continues uh, to be a great district, and I had three kids uh, graduate from the Shawnee Mission District, uh, our oldest from the special education program at North, and uh, two other children from Shawnee Mission West. So thank you for your commitment to our community, to the school district, and the professional staff and, and teachers throughout the district who, uh, who present the kind of opportunity that uh, every child needs. So thank you very much. That's not the reason I'm here this evening. Uh, the county has been uh, looking at an issue which is coming to a head as a result of a decision by the Board of Tax Appeals in Topeka. Uh, there, Obviously, the county appraiser has the state responsibility of assessing all property, uh, whether it's residential, whether it's commercial property. And the issue that has been before the Board of Tax Appeals is uh, a valuation process for big box stores. Uh, however, the result of their decision will not be limited to big box stores. And let me tell you what that is. There were two theories that are advanced. Uh, on the big box stores. Uh, one is called the dark store theory. Uh, it's a hypothetical vacant building. Uh, even though the property is, has thousands of people going in and out the store every day and they're doing tens of millions or maybe a hundred million dollars worth of sales or more every year, the theory that's been advanced to value that property is that it's empty. There is no activity taking place in that store. Therefore, dark store. The only thing they want valued, that theory wants valued, is the walls, the ceiling. Excuse me. That's it. That's it. Which doesn't make sense to most of us. Uh, if you look at the word hypothetical, it means something that's not real. And yet, they want... Uh, the state to endorse that approach to value those stores. The other theory that's been advanced is called the hypothetical lease rate or a hypothetical lease fee. Uh, for instance, in the, uh, in the county appraisals process, they, they look at what uh, is in the marketplace, lease rates for those kind of facilities. Uh, let's say it's $9 a square foot. I'll just pull a number out of the air. And uh, so, uh, but under the hypothetical lease theory, they come up with hypotheticals that they say reduces that lease rate to $7 a square foot. So you've got a big drop in property valuation. The decision that was just rendered by the Board of Tax Appeals, there were seven or eight target stores <coughs> that advanced both of these theories in their arguments. And the Board of Tax Appeals agreed with the hypothetical lease fee approach. What does that mean? 
Well, that means, uh, and we went through every one of those uh, properties, about a 30% average reduction in their valuation. Uh, that's a lot of money. That's a lot of money that's not collected. And if it's not collected from that class of property, who pays? All of us that are left. And that means primarily residential property. So what are the numbers? We went through uh, all the classes of commercial property that might qualify under that theory. And I'm not saying something that they don't know, but uh, we've also got on the list CVS, Walgreens, Best Buy, and you can put every grocery store on that list. And there are a lot of other commercial businesses uh, who might be represented by interject uh, by attorneys who are, who are energi energized by the opportunity to uh, test this uh, uh, theory further. Now, so we went through the county, every class of business, to see the impact on all the taxing jurisdictions. There are cities, there are schools, there's the county, there's fire districts, there are spatial taxing districts. We accumulated all of those, and uh, the total loss under the BOTA decision, which represents a 30% drop, is almost $100 million. I think it's $99.9 something like that. The biggest impact is on the school districts. Uh, our school districts, all six collectively in the county, would lose over $52 million, $52 million of local tax revenues. In addition, you all know that the state has a 20 mil levy that uh, they levy, which goes to the state for the school funding formula. Uh, that's another $15 million. So total in Johnson County, the loss for schools at the local level and the state level would be uh, about 67 or almost $70 million. For Johnson County, parks and rec, libraries, it would be a $21 million loss. The cities also would lose significant money. Uh, for the city of Overland Park, it would be a little over $4 million. City of Lenexa, over $4 million. Uh, and in Olathe, uh, it would be uh, just a little under $4 million. So across the board, there would be significant revenue lost if, this, if these theories are allowed to proceed. And that's the point that I want to make. Uh, we have been working on legislation that could be introduced and uh, to offset uh, this particular theory. Uh, we have not received the complete report from the Board of Tax Appeals, which would su be supportive of their decision. Once we will receive that, we will evaluate it and very likely will take the next step to appeal it to the courts. That would be a full decision that the Board of County Commissioners would have to make. But the n numbers are so large and the impact would be so negative on uh, uh, residential property owners that uh, we think, I think, that's a step that we will have to take uh, and even pursue it further. Put that into a term that most of us can readily identify with, the mill levy. In order to recover that amount of money, local 
uh, as well as state, city, uh, mill levies in Johnson County would have to increase by 11 to 14 mills. And in some jurisdictions, that means the mill levy would more than double. So that's the impact, potential impact, that we're looking at. And uh, so want to make you aware of it. Uh, I think the schools will be important in uh, our supporting our position that these hypothetical values just do not make sense. And secondly, that the impact on our schools is so significant uh, that that approach should be rejected. So uh, I'm not sure that legislation can be introduced this session, but would ask you to uh, 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 educate your constituents uh, and the patrons of the district. We will be doing the same thing, talking to as many groups as we can. Uh, this is uh, this is a significant, significant item. So thank you very much. Uh, uh, I think you've been distributed copies of, uh, of some of the data that I've referred to. So take a look at it and uh, join with us uh, in this effort to, uh, to eliminate the hypothetical uh, approaches to evaluating property. Thank you very much. Thank you, Chairman Eilert. We appreciate your coming forward. Any questions from our board at this point? Thank you. Thank you for coming today. We appreciate it. With that, we move on to our next special presentation, and it's uh, item C2, our legislative update, and we welcome our district lobbyist, Dr. Stuart Little. Welcome. And Mr. Stratton, and for the audience, there was a reason that we put these two presentations together, because we think the strength of what we do in Topeka to lobby along with um, our cooperation with our cities and our county are going to be extremely important, so we have um, briefed Dr. Little with respect to this issue. And again, we just want to show a, a, a level of confidence with good people that have come here tonight that we're in this fight together. Welcome. Thank you, uh, Mr. President. Uh, Stuart Little with Little Government Relations in Topeka. I'm here to give you a brief legislative update uh, and, to, and just to, to note that um, the, the chairman's uh, comments with regard to the dark store theory. We have, uh, among the other education folks, have been having, have, uh, as uh, the chairman has begun to have conversations, we've begun to have our own conversations in Topeka, making sure that everyone is aware of this issue. And so while it hasn't been a policy discussion in Topeka, except in one, the Senate Tax Committee, and they're going to get into it again uh, later this week. But we're, we're aware of this, and there are conversations going on about what the potential impact of this would be on the, the revenue that's available and those kinds of things. So we are uh, keeping our eyes and ears on that. Um, thank you, uh, members of the board, uh, Dr. Southwick and Dr. Atha, for uh, the continued efforts during the legislative session. We're at the midpoint. We're halfway through the legislative session. We're actually more than halfway through the legislative session. We don't have a lot of bills to talk about today. Uh, I have a lot of bills on my list, but not a lot to talk about. So I'm going to basically talk about three major things that have been occurring in the last couple of weeks and talk, or the last week, and then talk about a couple of bills that we have going on. Uh, that maybe still come up of relevance. And of course, we still have school finance out there, which has been the subject of very little conversation so far. Um, there are six weeks of the legislative session uh, to, to be had 
this week's kind of will be a brief week, so there's about five weeks left. So there's not a lot of time left for work to be done. There were three issues that came up in the last week that I'll hit the highlights on. The first one has to do with House Bill 2460. This was the gun safety bill that came out of the House Federal and State Affairs Committee. Uh, the bill is optional. It allows a school district to implement a gun safety program, but if you choose to do that, you can only use one of two programs, the NRA program, the Kansas Department of Wildlife and Parks program for older kids. There was a discussion and effort with some of the members of our delegation who were on that committee to talk about amending the bill when it was still in committee. If it's going to be optional, it should also be optional for a school board to have the, in the, under the guise of local control that you all could pick what kind of program you wanted to have for the gun safety education program. That was defeated in committee. The bill went on to the full floor of the House and was one of the few education bills that was up right before turnaround where they have to pass bills out from one chamber to the other. That bill came on the heels of the, of the latest school shooting in Florida, which um, I think the supporters of that legislation who actively wanted to get it uh, on the House floor decided it was probably uh, not the right time to have that conversation. So the bill did not run. It was supposed to. And we've been told that they're working, the supporters of the bill are working on coming back with a broader school safety package, whatever that may mean. So that was one we were watching. There were going to be attempts again on the House floor to address it to make sure that that was an optional uh, issue for you all. The second bill I would mention that came up uh, in this last week before turnaround concerned due process in the House Education Committee. There was a bill that was going to uh, expand the requirements for reporting on bullying. In committee, there was an amendment made that restored full due process procedures to the pre-19 or 2014 change that would have had that. The two items were put together in the bill, passed on to the full House over the objections of the chair, and it was on the House going to be acted upon as well. And so that was something that we were going to have a debate about due process and bullying legislation again. Um, the, 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 one of the exempt committees hastily met and introduced both a bullying bill and a due process bill, and then the leadership in the House killed the due process bullying bill, the combined bill, so it would be dead and couldn't be acted on. It was stricken from the calendar. So we still have due process, we still have bullying bill, but they are separated now. So the, those, both of those pieces of legislation uh, are, are still sitting on the House floor awaiting action. Uh, there was a dyslexia task force that was passed. That was the only thing that kind of got out of either chamber, which is uh, uh, going to be looking at uh, dyslexia issues and, and setting up a task force to come up with some, some policy recommendations for you all. Um, the, 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 probably the most uh, significant event was that the consultants who were hired by the legislature to make a, uh, an assessment of the adequacy of the current school finance formula and make a recommendation to the legislature so they could be preparing a response to the Gannon decision, which they'll need to do within a, a few short weeks. They appeared, the consultants appeared uh, on Friday in front of a joint legislative committee and then on Saturday appeared at a, at a uh, an educator's function at the uh, Kansas Association of School Boards. I've included a link in my report. The, the legislative hearing was archived, but it's not available online. I haven't found the link to that yet, but the KASB meeting well, is documented, and that's in the report, and you can watch that if you didn't get a chance to watch when it was happening. It's four hours of, frankly, pretty interesting four hours conversation about school finance, um, if you're into that kind of stuff. Um, the The... 
and, and some of us are. That's the amazing thing. The, um, basically, the consultants were, are being uh, hired to very quickly assess the current school finance formula system, match that up with the expectations in the ROSE standards and the college and career ready standards and the new evolving Kansas CAN uh, program that the, that the Department of Education and come to some conclusion about are we adequately funding education. I tried to tried to condense that into one paragraph in my report about what they talked about and, and, and it will feel strained to you because it's, it is a big project that doesn't probably have sufficient time to dig into the issues that they need to. Uh, there are, um, there are a, um, a lot of questions that were raised about this study, but it is also um, being done uh, quickly, but to try to, to get a, a snapshot of what are we spending and are we close to adequate. And I think it will, it will, it will make that recommendation. The consultants have said they will recommend to the legislature uh, a cost figure uh, 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 if, we're, if we're not adequate, what might need to be added. There are an, any number of questions that, that, are, that have come up based on their study. For, and I'll just note, too, not to nitpick the study, but a couple of things. Excluding transportation and food costs from the calculation of are we adequately um, providing funding for uh, students, there's an argument, they say that doesn't directly tie to student achievement and there are legitimate arguments, I think, that were raised with them that if a kid's hungry, they're not learning. And if they have to, if they're, and does the call, the underfunding of transportation, for example, shifting money that should be spent in a classroom to pay for buses that we're not funding because of the formula, all those issues are part of the equation. Uh, there's any number of other issues that, can, that uh, will uh, emanate from that study, and I'm happy to respond to questions about that. I'll mention briefly just a couple of bills. There are 36 pieces of legislation that have been introduced that, are, that we're tracking that are in your report, and there are 17 of them that haven't even had hearings. So there's a lot of legislation that was introduced. There's a long list of school finance bills, several dual process bills. But there, there is not a whole lot moving. And as you can tell, we get to the midpoint of the session, we really were only talking about three bills and only one of them even made it through that process. So for me, what that means is there are a lot of issues out there and for you all to watch this, but nothing's really moving because obviously the biggest issue out there is school finance and what are we gonna be doing with that? And there've been, other than the consultants coming in, there's still the legislative committees are kind of in information gathering stage. For example, like this week, there's not a lot going on other than an informational briefing on low enrollment waiting and food, food service contracting. So we're still, I'm not sure what we're waiting for. I think the consultants, but at some point, some decisions are gonna to have to be made about what's put together in a school finance plan. I'd be happy to answer questions. There's a lot of information in my written report and it will be published online, I believe, tomorrow available there. Great, thank you. Board members have questions. I have a question. Please go ahead. Um, the consultant who was brought in from Tech, oh. The consultant who was brought in from Texas, I had heard that there was some controversy with a report that she had submitted in the, a Texas school financing case, that there were doubts about its credibility or the numbers that were utilized. Um, can you speak to that at all? Can you speak to what happened in Texas and whether or not that raises issues here or concerns here? 
Well, I, I'm, th thank you for the question, and, and I'm happy to, uh, to respond to that. And beginning by, I am not an educational finance consultant expert, and so I can't get into a lot of that. And so from, from my perspective, the work that I'm doing for you all is to make sure that, that, that you all uh, have a sense of how that issue, which was written about in particular in the Topeka newspaper and has been picked up by a variety of other folks, questions that were raised about the study that was done uh, in, I believe, 2005 or 2006 and were part of a, a school finance litigation there is the potential that it has an impact on what the meaning of this, this consultant's report will mean in Kansas and for us and how the legislature is going to make decisions. There were issues with a, an assessment that they did that suggested that there, what needed to happen for Texas schools to achieve adequacy was something less than a million dollars in additional funding while others were in the 300 to 600 million dollar range. And so there was some thought that what's being included may be limiting and not as, as, as as broad as others are thinking about what's adequate for schools. And I think that the, that information came out a couple of days before the occult consultant came to town. So a lot of the conversation that was had with the consultant was, what are you going to do about, and they talked about transportation, schools, at risk, how are you calculating and, and talking about at risk, social emotional health, and how does that get factored in? And if you're only looking at the, the, the rose capacities or uh, graduation rates and accreditation standard, there's no measure for a lot of those kinds of things. And if you're omitting that, are you omitting a very important and costly part of what it takes to educate kids? And so the fact that that issue arose, that it was publicly shared, and, and the, the consultant, to their credit, the first words out of their mouth were responding to that issue and talking about it. But it, it is, you know, hired to perform the work they've been asked to do. I think uh, it's, the task they have is big, it's incredibly complex, and they probably don't have the time to do it the way it should be done. And I think that does leave open what's going to be probably a, 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 a variety of interpretations of their work, and that will be one of them, that in other states that had turned out that way. I have, I have one follow-up, that's okay. So the previous study that was done by yeah. how long did they spend doing that particular study? Because that was just a few years ago, wasn't it? Oh, five. Oh, five. It took them five years. So that was a five. So the previous study was a five-year study. And, and then how long did they put for this particular consultant? Yeah, the last studies were the, the legislative post audit was done internally. There was the Augen, Blick, and Meyer. There was the other one that was done as related to the, to the post audit. And the last one, I believe, would have been in 2006, I think was the last time one had come out. And so they were tasked, I believe they were hired in January, maybe late December, right, right at the end of the year or early January. And so it was, so we're talking, you know, three months, their deadline is the 15th of March. And one of the things, you, you, you raised this question, the last studies were done 15 years ago. One of the things that's of concern is their, their assessment is based on the costs and the expenditures only since 2015. And so, and that was, I think, even when we were in block grant time. So that, right. that it doesn't it, take into consideration the loss of funding that occurred after 2010, like the drop. Right. Yeah, and the last time, theoretically, right. essentially when the court said we were adequate, which would have been 2009 in the second year of Montoy, and said, okay, we're adequate, 
you're skipping a number of years before you start looking at dollars again. Okay, thank you. Other questions? Yes, Ms. Zealand. Just kind of to segue into that, then all the questions the, um, that she had while she was here in both sessions with the, with the joint chambers and with KASB Crown, is, is she going to go back and make any additions or changes to the study, per se? A couple of things, and, and I thought, you know, for an consultant at the end of a four-hour, which was not always a friendly conversation, it didn't feel like at the, the Kansas Association of School Boards on Saturday, she gave, she had kept track of a pretty healthy list of things that she wanted to do and that knew needed to be done at risk, having some thought to that. Uh, in particular, they had talked about how they were going to do salary calculations and that what would be the cost of, of salaries and she had kind of cast the, like the lowest wage you'd be willing to work for. And then there was a whole conversation from administrators about the variances in, in benefits packages and capers and, and all those kinds of things and, and a regionalization of that and depending on where you weren't. She said, you know, there, I've, she said, I've learned some of those things that we need to make sure are included in that. You know, we're 16 days away from getting the report, so I don't know what can happen, but that's... That, but she did definitely, and she had a pretty good list of things that she was going to include. So do you give hope that maybe that she can include some of that stuff when she comes back in 16 days with that report? <laughs> and then it goes to peer review, is that correct? After yes. it's presented or before it's presented? Y yes. Okay. That's part of what the state did was they contracted <laughs> with her, and then there'll be a peer review and outside evaluation of the work. Well, to segue as well, I know Mrs. Zila and I and Dr. Aether were there and Mary Sinclair was there with her state PTA hat on. And I think the one question that really got to, to me personally was Representative Rooker's question on how she was going to quantify emotional and uh, social needs of children. And she basically said there are no metrics to measure that. And we all kind of raised our eyebrows and went, wait, <laughs> there are. So we had uh, some input, I think, there. I have a totally different question, and Dr. Sinclair, I'm going to look at you because I know you had your hand up. Did you want to follow up on that subject matter with your? Because um, mine's a different subject, so. Okay. Um, one of the, so um, uh, a, a couple of, um, I was stayed for the Saturday conversation as well, and so to the social emotional how, how is she capturing that? There were a couple of options that were offered that she was entertaining, the Kansas Department of Education um, at-risk metric, but that was kind of problematic. So she was entertaining that. Um, I did talk to her about adding maybe a measure from the census data, so looking at parent education level. But there was a healthy conversation around what information could be used and could be available and processing that through. Um, but it might be something that we as school boards need to think about how we can inform and help capture that mm -hmm. um, metrics. I think that is so important. It's something that I think we might be hearing later tonight about students' social emotional needs and how we as a, a public school community capture that information, I think, is and identify that need so that that can be factored into the, the formula, I think, is critical. Um, the, the outcome piece. This is the, um, do you have a sense of how they're going to be defining what <coughs> outcomes are? I mean, that was, to me, I thought I was kind of surprised that 
that it took us two days to actually get to a closer conversation about what it is those performance thresholds and those outcome indicators and measures are going to be, because she seemed to be open to the idea of adding data back to 2005 to the point that, you know, to your point that you were raising about capturing all those changes in school finance formula. So go back to 2005, well, the only metric that would go back that far would be state assessments. And so you would kind of be limiting your analysis to state assessments. Right. Um, but then they were also kind of talking about, I, I, I just didn't, I got closer glimpses of what they were going to be using to measure outcomes, which seems to be a critical, pretty critical part of this study. But aside from maybe looking at the, um, our state application for um, the education, right. um, the ESSA application, I didn't get a sense of, they didn't seem to be telling us what those outcome measures were going to be or those performance thresholds. No, I, I didn't get a sense. I think there were a tremendous number of questions. questions. Yes. That, okay. uh, but, but again, for, for <laughs> the purposes of, yeah. and, and as, a, as, a, as, a, as a thoughtful process and as, as an intellectual, uh, not a, just an exercise, but as to, to work through those issues, I think are significant. What will be telling, because this is part of a legislative public policy procedure, is to what extent will this be interpreted and used as valid both legislatively and in some way to go to the to the Supreme Court because essentially what this is is the legislature saying you've told us to show our work we're going to show our work which will determine what we believe is adequacy since that's what they have to address and so at some level this report is the documentation limited though it may be, leaving questions though it may be, it is going to come back with something that's going to have a dollar figure that the legislature is either going to embrace, reject, or have 63 and 21 embrace and, and send on through the process to say this is what we believe we need. And so it, it is not going to be perfect. It is not going to address a lot of those issues. And I think one of the one of the probably my takeaway from it, and you've obviously sat through both of those days as well, is that um, there are going to be lots of hooks on this that are going to make it uh, challenging to carry that argument forward. But it it may settle in on the uh, on a number that will be what the legislature a majority of the legislature believes is is, is sufficient. Whether the court does, that's up to them. It's, Mrs. Mack? Um, my question is on a different subject. Um, in January, many of us were at the Johnson County Legislator Luncheon mm -hmm. um, that was in Topeka. And at that meeting, there was a uh, legislator from Johnson County who requested that this board put together a letter of our opinion of the election cycle of school boards and maybe even more specifically, the I believe the piece of legislation right now. I don't have my notes in front of me, and I apologize, Dr. Little, but um, about the piece of legislation where um, organizational meeting uh, time frame would change and also that uh, newly elected uh, officials would take office at the next regularly scheduled meeting, which for us would be in December. Um, and we were asked very specifically for a letter on what this board thinks about that, 
I know that in our legislative platform in the past, we have, we were very, we were not happy that our election cycle was going to be changed in the first place, and we have always said that we want to be nonpartisan. Um, but I'm wondering um, what your thoughts are as to uh, what response that we should give, and should it be specific to the bill? What would, what would your thoughts be? Well, the, the legislation that was proposed, and it had a hearing in Senate Ethics Elections and Local Government, it remains in committee. It has not moved out of there in, all, in, in part because having just made the change, there's some interest in letting it go for a year and see what issues may exist. You know, we may not have a sense of what exists. But the, the, but the, the idea was that you would be sworn in at the next meeting after the local election board certified the election outcomes and would get folks in there and moving rather than leaving time. Uh, and uh, it, it's not moving. I think KSB, I believe, even testified and said, we're not ready to do anything yet. Let's just leave it as it go as as it is right now to the extent that you want to communicate something back to our legislator who raised that that question i'm happy to work with you to craft some language if if there's something in particular that you are interested in conveying great Can I just say yes right please on, go ahead her question there about the elections would it behoove us to get all six johnson county school boards together to kind of put something together so it's a it's a document coming from all the school districts we are always better when we work together. <laughs> Anyone else? Dr. Lowell, thank you for your time. We appreciate it. Thank you. Next up under special presentations, uh, letter C, number three, uh, John Douglas, to speak to us regarding a district security update. Mr. President, members of the board, it goes without saying, but last week was not only tragic, but a very, very bad day, uh, week for school security and security of students and others in general. So we were asked to, to come tonight and answer questions and certainly give you some kind of idea of where we stand as a district. And what I'd like to do is to give you a very brief um, outline of that information because it is so broad and it is so so deep and complicated we could be here much longer than tonight trying to discuss all the nuances and then give you the opportunity with enough time to be able to ask for questions which are on your mind and other people's mind as well so let me start off by saying that when you judge how well we're doing you have to judge three basic areas number one you have to take a look at how good our surveillance is and our ability to gather information and when I say surveillance, I'm not talking about being able to go out and follow people around necessarily. I'm talking about how do we gather information on, partic on particular individuals who may be wishing to do harm to the, to the students and staff of a school. Starting there, I would tell you I feel very good about that area. Um, I know it may come as a surprise to you, but we have interdicted, in my opinion, at least three very near misses in the last three and a half years, very close and very preparation and gathering of resources that could actually have become active shooter events. And that was done because we received information of a very strong nature from our students in particular, uh, sometimes with our staff, and we were able to act on that with our law enforcement partners and come not only interdict what I thought was coming, but also be able to file charges and, and take uh, judicial action in the school district. 
we've had probably three times that many threats against the school which were inadequate in their preparation or inadequate in their resources, but we're able to remediate those as well. So when it comes to the first part, I feel very good about that. Um, we have some work to do because no system is perfect, and we, will con we are continuing to do that, more about that in a minute. The second area is we have to be able to maintain the integrity. The second layer of our strategy is to maintain the integrity of our buildings and the kids that are inside of them. We cannot let our perimeters down. We have to be able to secure those perimeters. And, you know, school buildings are not meant to be fortresses, and they're not meant to be jails, and, and they're very open, and they're very light, and they're very airy. And so it is a challenge. Um, a high school has an average of 43 doors external doors and they all have to be accessible so that the kids can get out that goes way back to a 1950 ruling with the fire departments the last fatality in a school fire that we know of that presents a big challenge but we've been able because of the bond issue you approved and the public approved some three years ago to put in probably the state of art of the art security system when it comes to cameras and locking doors and the ability we've been able to manipulate that into pod surveillance so that each attendance area has a control station that monitors those, those alarms and monitors those cameras. And they can work independently or they can work collectively if in, in the case of an event. Um, you heard in Florida that they saw on the cameras where the shooter was moving from one area to another or had left the building. We have the capability and we do drills to to actually find people in those buildings that we're looking for. So again, I have a very good feeling about the, the second area. We, it is not perfect. It has its moments and its vulnerabilities, and we are constantly working on that to, to shore those up. And then we have the third area, and the third area is training for the unthinkable. You know, how do we go about training our staff? How do we go about training the kids uh, to react in the event of an emergency? That is the most difficult in some respects because time in a school district is, is extremely difficult to get um, the adequate kind of time necessary to train on that. Obviously, we can't train all day every day, but we have a very transient population. We have kids who move through our system not only from top to bottom but from school to school where they go from as my own granddaughter will today, matriculate, or this year will matriculate from middle school to high school, and everything is different. So they're constantly on the move, and constantly training them and trying to adapt them to the new circumstances is a huge challenge, and we are working on it as well. What happens when we have one of these events is my staff and I sit down and start taking it apart from top to bottom. We have been studying ever since the first shooting. In fact, we were watching it on TV when the shooting event occurred in Florida. We were studying then what they were doing. And I, I noticed that the way they were evacuating the building seemed to be very, very good. But since that time, we've seen all kinds of things come out indicating vulnerabilities in that school district. And I'm not casting a shadow. Let me tell you what. After an event like that, there's always things to find. And there's always things that you have to come back to. But we are constantly trying to anticipate what's happening in those kinds of events. And they're like a flu virus. They mutate every single time. Already in this event, I've noticed two or three things which 
which the shooter did to improve the vulnerability and the lethality of his attack from previous attacks. I cannot and will not go into those because I don't want to sow the seeds of, of additional information to those who would do harm to our kids. But I can tell you I have seen them and we are already strategizing on how to deal with them and to put it into a lexicon of what we deal with. I'll also tell you this, one of the hardest things to deal with in this is the one solution fits all. When these things happen, the public is so horrified and we're all so terrified of what's happened that we strive to find the one magic pill that will fix it. And you can tell that, that feeling when you hear out, if we only did this, if we only did that. If we did this, then we wouldn't have that. That's a fool's bargain. It is not one thing. One thing will not solve it. What we have to do is to be able to put as many obstacles in the path of that individual bent on hurting our kids as we possibly can and to limit the number of people who can do that. And there are a wide range of things that we can do. Those are the things we'll have to settle on. Now, in summation, I'd say this. I have four children, as you all know, who are grandchildren who go to the Shawnee Mission School District. I believe every morning when their parents send them off to school that they are safe. And I want the people who live here to feel the same way. But as you also know, my last week as chief of police at Overland Park had the assault on the Jewish Community Center. You will never hear me say, never again. We have to always be vigilant. We have to always work at it. We can't ever sit back on our laurels, no matter how good we feel about what we have, and depend upon that to carry us through. We have to consistently, and we started that this afternoon again with my staff, we are taking our system apart right now, looking for everything we can to improve it. And we won't stop till we do. So having said that, if there are questions that I can answer, I would be glad to try. Thank you. Questions? Questions? Yeah, I, I have a question. Um, what are we doing to make sure that there is uniform practice across the district that everyone is receiving the same amount of training or preparation from building to building? We are working at that very hard, and I will be the first one to tell you. We have 44 buildings. We have 44 principals. <clears throat> We have all kinds of administrators who all work in good faith and try to do what's the best for the kids, but they all do things a little bit differently. And trying to get a consistent message that plays out to each and every one of those staffs to operate in the same way while allowing the schools some flexibility to be able to tailor it for how they, they have and their tolerance for, for different things is a huge challenge. Uh, it's one of the things we're working on very hard right now. Thank you. Other questions? Um, yes, Dr. Sinclair, go ahead. Um, the um, students have, of the Shawnee Mission East have kind of organized a, a, a conversation within the, within the school community and um, and so to the extent that students have concerns, have they shared or reached out to anyone in the district, um, kind of some of their thoughts and ideas about how to address safety or 
Will that be? Not to my knowledge, other than they may have to their, to their uh, high school principal in some respect. Um, if so, they haven't come to my knowledge. Okay. Uh, I don't think that's to be unexpected. Right now, across the country, after what's happened in um, Florida, the kids are hypervigilant and now hyperactive, and they realize they are starting to get a voice. And so I think that to the extent that they can, we should support them exercising that voice. I would also say at the same time, as a public institution, we can't take sides on political issues, but we should support them in their ability to say what's on their mind and express their feelings, and, and I think that's a good thing. Can I add to that for just a minute? Um, we've had conversations and will continue to have conversations with all the superintendents in Johnson County with respect to potential uh, demonstrations or walkouts. And um, I think I mentioned to you uh, today, Mary, the information we'd received from AASA in terms of, of things that are going on around the country and some things to look at. Um, I want to assure our students uh, that might be listening tonight that it's important uh, that they have an opportunity to express their voice. One of the things that we'll look at very carefully is making sure that they're safe as they do that. Um, there's a difference between a walkout down the street in Los Angeles versus potentially a, a walkout to a place um, on a campus supervised with teachers. Uh, and right now, I think the event at East was actually canceled because of a weather day, and I don't know that that's been rescheduled, but we plan to to be there um, to listen and, again, uh, voice uh, their public opinion, which they have a right to do but at the same time. Let's be civil and let's be safe to all those involved. Um, in addition to that, I have a conversation coming up with Linda Seek uh, in the next uh, within the next week, I think it is, where we'll have some conversations about teacher activity around all of that. So we're trying our best to prepare for that, um, and we'll be working on that as our colleagues across Johnson County over the next month or so. Anyone else? Yes. I'd just like to say thank you. Um, to you and all of the efforts that you've done for Shawnee Mission here. I know that you get calls from around the country to say, I hear you have the state-of-the-art system set up at the New York School District, so thank you. We're so, we're so lucky to have you, and we appreciate all of your efforts. I, I appreciate that very much, but the truth of the matter is, it is my staff, it is the staff of the schools, and more importantly, it is the school children themselves who have made our efforts successful. So if there's accolades to be given, it's them that, that should receive them. Anyone else? Um. Yeah. So one of the, the questions that we had in a previous conversation, and it had to do with um, the vetting of who we give authorization to as far as moving throughout our buildings. And we've got these great checkpoints. We just wanted to get a refresher on on how the folks are moving back and forth and who's given authorizations to move and forth and, and if there's background checks involved in that too. There are. Um, first of all, let me say that as part of a very active method of trying to secure our perimeters and the integrity of the school, we try to stop everybody without a really good reason to go back in the school proper, to, proper from going any further than the office. 
And one of the first things we did originally was to install a Raptor system, which gave us opportunities to look at, um, to find out if any of these individuals are on the, the state-sponsored, used to be the, the um, uh, sexual predator list, but it's been expanded to two or three other things to include homicide, robbery, and, and uh, narcotic sales. So we run everybody through that with a few exceptions. And those exceptions are the staff, which are the certified staff, the teachers, the non-certified staff, which are, are others, and then volunteers. Now, all of them are screened at some point in time at the beginning of their employment. The teachers are the only ones right now that, that I believe have recurring checks and certifications. And that occurs at the time they renew their license, they have to go through the fingerprint process and again. Um, I'm still adjusting to a school environment. That's, that's much less than I would have thought. Uh, and it certainly doesn't cover anybody else who's not a teacher. So consequently, I've recommended several times that we have um, the ability to check more frequently than, than certainly five years, but we need to be doing it on all of our staff. We need it to be whether it's non-certified or volunteers. And I would point out to you that, that that check is not something that's like an inoculation that lasts for two or three years. That is simply a picture of one day in time, and that's everything backwards. Uh, but it doesn't cover anything that happens tomorrow. And so the day after the check is made, or two days after the check is made, something could very likely have happened. Many organizations also have a personnel policy that requires employees, as part of the performance of their job, that should they be arrested, especially for certain offenses, that they notify the employer. I think that's a good idea, too. But I absolutely would recommend, and we'll look at, if you wish, um, reoccurring um, backgrounds on all of our staff and, and certainly at an interval um, that could be more than or less than the five years we're talking about. Great. Thank you. We'll look for follow-up conversation on that subject. But thank you for the update. With that, we move down the agenda to uh, item D1, and it's a discussion on our open, open forum procedures. Uh, we've had a board task force working on that, and I'll turn to Mrs. Mack to give us an update or discussion. Okay. Thank you, Mr. President. Um, at uh, the board workshop, the uh, board went through and we made some more edits to our recommended changes for public participation at board meetings. Um, we made some good edits. Some good comments were made. I don't think we're quite done yet, um, especially on um, not not that we disagree, but we think that that um, the writing could be better and um, the information could be a little bit more clear. Um, I'll remind everyone that when we started to do this project, we wanted to make sure that our uh, documents were consistent. They don't necessarily have to be identical, but we want to get this right. Um, we asked for public comment on our public comment <laughs> on our open forum, um, and we did not receive any. Um, so the board has um, really taken this issue on uh, onto ourselves, and we really had a, a really good discussion today. With that being said, um, I'm going to kind of look at the board as we sit here. Um, some of the areas we came to consensus on with the edits, um, particularly the first recommended change, which is to board policy BCBI. 
I'm wondering if uh, you all are comfortable with me even bringing up a motion with uh, for and having this be a first reading that we could go um, at the March meeting would could be our second reading. Um, I just I feel um, I feel like we need to start getting um, some uh, concrete things accomplished. <laughs> so I'm wondering if you think that that would be a good place to start. Mrs. Zeal. I have a thought on that. In that, I'm not sure that we're ready for our first reading on this tonight. We've, we've jumbled and wordsmithed and done all sorts of things. I'd like to see that in a format that's that's readable and flows, and then maybe discuss that at our next meeting. There are some things we can take care of tonight. I think as far as the public comment portion of this, you know, several different facets of this. But for the board policy, I think that's something maybe that we need to craft and put all the words together, maybe, and then send it out to the board for maybe even more comment or wordsmithing or ideas of what we need to do. And then have it published on the agenda, too. It needs to be on the agenda, I would imagine, with, with sure. the words. Because right now it's not anywhere. So, I, I, I mean, other than here. Right. So I think it needs to be actually on the agenda, like we have another board policy that's on here tonight to talk about. So... The, the only the only reason I would disagree with you all, I mean, obviously, it, it there is probably a policy somewhere that you're supposed to have a policy on the agenda. I understand that, but we as a board can go through that. I know it's policy procedure, <laughs> but um, if we do that, then that means we'll have a first reading at the end of March, and then we'll have a second reading at the end of April. We're not required so, to have re not. second reading. Correct. Okay, by, by our board policy. Okay, because okay. my thought process was is at least if we get the, get what we have what we talked about because I have the edits written down, we could do that as a first reading and then in March we could have the second reading. But if you all don't think that's a good idea, that's fine too. Can I ask a question? Yes, Mrs. Owsley. So we need the first reading to vote on it at the next meeting. Correct. A first so reading is just to put it. A reading. A so reading. It's just a reading. reading. You don't so, have all right. To have so we just have to have the reading. So. We're not going to be able to approve this policy if we don't do the reading tonight, next, at the not next correct. meeting. Not correct. So not can correct. you explain that procedure for me? If, if a proposal is made before the body, they may take action on it at that meeting. Okay. So we can still pass this next month, even in if March. we don't do the reading tonight? Yes, in March. But what a first reading would, what, if I were to propose it tonight, then it would actually be in the minutes. Mrs. Winter would have it. It would be a record in board docs as a first reading so that people would have a clean copy of it rather than, I don't, I guess, because we want people to see it. I'm not quite sure how to do that, except we just put it on the website that, once again, this is our recommended changes. Do you, do you understand what I'm saying? Well, no. Said, it would be listed in board docs for As an action item under so the Board see. of Education, it would be a, a policy update with all the, I mean, everybody can read it. It goes live and we can all see it. And so. board docs goes up for the next meeting. Mrs. Wintering, how many days in advance does board docs go up? It goes three days before the uh, actual meeting. So that's my point. That's, that's my point. It would only go up three days. Unless we haven't had any comment from anyone in the past month while we've been kind of crafting this, um, that, that would still give them some time to have input with that, but that's just my thought. Okay, well, um, feel free to read through it if you would like to. Here, you could have a, a reading 
by you right now. <laughs> <laughs> and not an official yeah. reading. We'd like to. All right, well, Why no. don't you do it in the form of a summary of what we discussed at our board okay. workshop today? All right. Well, what we decided today was, um, and I don't know if it's up on the thing. Um, it is. Okay, recommended changes that um, the board policy BCBI would read. Public comment is an agenda item at every regularly <laughs> scheduled monthly board meeting. The board president or presiding officer may invite speakers who have completed the public information card to speak during public comment. Guidelines for the public forum can be found on the district website, and then we would have the link, available from the clerk prior to the board meeting and at the meeting itself. The board president may impose a limit on the time a visitor may address the board. The board president may ask groups with the same interest to appoint a spokesperson to deliver the group's message. Generally, board members may not respond except to ask clarifying questions. The board president may subsequently direct the superintendent to research issues, may direct the superintendent or his or her designee to research issues and provide information to the board and or the individual patron. So those were the changes we made to that board policy. Number two, we talked about the blue card. And, um, Mrs. Wintering, could I ask you, do you have any um, board blue court cards you could just hold up to show everyone what we're talking about? Um, in the past, it's been called the request to speak uh, it card, and we um, decided to change the language on that to Shawnee Mission School District public comment information card, and um, then we added, we took away a couple of sentences, and then we added a signature line. By signing this card, I acknowledge that I have received a copy of the guidelines for public comment and will abide by them. Uh, so the process you will see in guidelines is, is that by 6.50 of the board meeting or in advance of the board meeting, um, a person who signs up to speak uh, also receives a copy of the guidelines from Mrs. Wintering so that they know what the guidelines are for their presentation. So is this one of the things you wanted to talk about, Mrs. Zila, as low-hanging fruit? To yes, yes. Okay. I think when we move to action items, I think we could probably move ahead on, on okay. something like that. All right. Part three, on the guidelines, we made a couple of different comments. Most of them were wordsmithing, but one area we need to work on is the top of the, where it says patrons are encouraged to submit. Um, I, just word, I just put together a little bit of a draft, um, which I think might, uh, might correct uh, the problems that were there. I wrote, patrons are encouraged to electronically submit their public comment information cards by 3.30 p.m. the Friday before a regularly scheduled Monday board meeting. Instructions for electronic submission may be found on the Board of Education webpage as part of the district website, and then put a link there. But that's something I think that we still want to discuss in the future. Is that correct, Mr. Stratton? Yes, okay. that's part of the bigger discussion. All right. Um, the other things that we, we added, we added requests for auxiliary aids and services for persons with disabilities wishing to address the board should be made with appropriate advance notice. The other thing that we uh, added just now, at second to the last, written comments and or materials will be accepted and should be given to the clerk of the board for distribution. Please ensure that there are at least eight copies for distribution. And then we said generally the board members may not respond except to ask clarifying questions. 
We would also add uh, the statement, um, the board president may, to the guidelines, we would add the board president may subsequently direct the superintendent to re or his or her designee to research issues and provide information to the board and or the individual <coughs> patron. Number four, we want to um, recommend that we change the word open forum to public comment as it more accurately reflects what we do, and we would ask that that happen in board docs. Number five, the board manual, um, we would change the language so that it would say, uh, you can see the edits there on the screen. We would also add after the word superintendent in the last, next to the last paragraph, um, after the word superintendent, we would say, or his or her designee. Um, in the last paragraph, we would uh, strike the word public and just say, if comments pertain to an item on that meeting's agenda, the board president may ask the superintendent or his or her designee to address those comments. And again, generally board members may not respond except to ask clarifying questions. As far as the president's comment, as an introduction, Mr. Stratton, would you like to address that part, please? Item six that we're talking about, um, and I'm looking at this because our next agenda item is public comment. <laughs> uh, but that uh, at this point, we have some guidelines that we've stipulated in the past and that we would look to reduce that amount so that it would be provided in, in written form to everyone. However, I did raise the question. I'd still like to uh, reiterate just some general thoughts as we introduce and bring forward our, our folks doing public comments, and I'll do that on our next item. Okay. That is um, basically what we went through in the workshop. I think that there are other items. Mrs. Mrs. Zila and Reverend Guy, I would look to you as members of the task force. Were there any other items that we went through in the workshop that I'm missing, knowing that there are other things we want to talk about? I think you caught what we, were, we talked about mm -hmm. okay. during the workshop. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Great. Anything else? Thank you. So, in, the so this is something that we'll move down and we'll talk about under, I believe it's S, Great. where we'll have it under board items. Uh, yes, under S. Thank, Thank you. you for the work of that task force. <laughs> that is appreciated. And now we'll move on to um, open forum, which is E1. And we have several folks that uh, have asked to speak today. Thank you for your patience as we are now uh, one hour, 20 minutes into the board meeting. But thank you for that uh, patience as we move on to the next section. So people were provided both on the op website as well as uh, in writing. And uh, folks were good enough to email us in advance as well. And we appreciate that, that they have an interest in speaking at the board meeting today. It's a guideline that we ask that uh, for a framework of a three-minute presentation. To, to the board, um, although we might not respond initially at the board, I will perhaps turn to the superintendent to see if there's something that we might be able to address at that point, or certainly I'll ask our, our board members to have some thoughts prepared at the, at the board comments at the end. There's certain some ways that you can uh, provide some input as well at that point. So, and also we, we, we generally suggest that if there's folks that have kind of the same idea or item that they'd like talked about, that they, that they do it together. I will say in advance that the, one of the groups that wants to speak today um, assured us that each of them had individual thoughts that they wanted to share, and that's appreciated. So with that, we'll move forward. And uh, I'll ask, uh, as I call your name, come on forward and please uh, restate your name and uh, share your thoughts with us. And first up is David Bendit. Thank you. Uh, my name is Dave Bendit. I have a uh, sixth grade daughter and a fourth grade son at Corinth Elementary. And in our school community, we've spent a lot of time talking about the importance of mental and emotional health in schools in the midst of challenges we see at Corinth and in the broader community. 
This discussion has led us here to ask the district to place a full-time counselor solely dedicated to emotional and mental health needs in every one of its schools. To ensure that our findings are more than anecdotal, I'd like to quote Children's Mercy Hospital Kansas from its 2016 Community Health Needs Assessment for the Greater Kansas City Region. Participants feel that mental health issues among children and adolescents are growing worse in the region. The nature of bullying has changed and respondents feel that youth are under more strain than ever. It is difficult to reduce barriers associated with mental health treatment when there simply aren't adequate resources available. This is especially relevant in schools which may lack counselors or funding to support any on-site mental health services. We quote Children's Mercy, and you'll hear later this evening from Dr. Melissa Miller, to provide a professional imprimatur on our own observational findings. But we suspect those of you in the room are not surprised by these findings because as board members, teachers, and parents, we know that kids have to deal with things they aren't equipped for, more so than we could have imagined in our own school days. Cyberbullying, concern about weapons, and constant access to media on top of family issues and illness. Fortunately, many of us don't find that our own kids actively suffer emotional health issues that clearly rise to the level of requiring professional intervention. But in addition to the fact that even kids who haven't needed personal interventions at this time may at some point need them in the future, and counselors teach valuable life skills to students through social thinking curricula. Additionally, the ramifications of any student requiring special attention impact the broader learning experience. The classroom teacher, lacking dedicated emotional health support, is forced to wear a counselor hat for which his or her qualifications are likely inadequate, not only doing a less than ideal job of managing that child's issue, but taking precious time away from the broader classroom. We've seen examples at Corinth where an entire class is moved into another room so that a classroom teacher can address a single student's issue. This is incredibly inefficient. Mental and emotional health are inextricably linked to academic success. EQ, or emotional intelligence, is increasingly seen as a life success factor equal to or greater in importance than traditional IQ. School staffing needs to reflect these realities. Our teachers at Corinth voted overwhelmingly by about 80% to prioritize a counselor over a foreign language program, even though that program gave them some much-needed prep time and if they were so fortunate that day, uh, the opportunity to sit back and drink a cup of coffee. When they were asked whether they want, uh, recommended maintaining that program or replacing it with a counselor with the PTA funds that were able to raise, the, they overwhelmingly said uh, that, the, that the counselor was more important, even at the cost of their own personal time. Uh, we think that's a pretty powerful indication. These, these teachers know what they're talking about, and we should listen to them. Uh, you'll have the opportunity this evening to hear from parents about their own personal experiences that led them to support this cause. And we hope and believe that you'll agree that the time is now for SMSD to act, to catch up to its peer districts, and to put a counselor in every building starting in the fall of 2018. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Bendit. Now we'd like to introduce, uh, invite Margaret Chaffee to come forward. And please correct me if I say the name wrong, too. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Again, my name is Margaret Chaffee. I am the parent of a Shawnee Mission East graduate, a Shawnee Mission East junior, an Indian Hills seventh grader, and a Corinth third grader. Um, and I want to acknowledge that we know this is a bigger issue than a Shawnee Mission East area concern, but I want to speak to my experience and my children's experience because those are the numbers that I know, and that's the experience that we've had. Um, 
I'm here on behalf of my four children, but also on the behalf of PTA um, from Corinth Elementary, and I want to let you know how we got here. We went through a discernment process with what to do with our funds that we raised that were intended for enrichment for educational purposes. In that discernment process, it became abundantly clear that we did not have adequate social-emotional support in our buildings, and we could not go forward with enrichment opportunities until those basic needs were met. And so that brought us here to speak to you because this issue is very important to us, not only in our own school building, but across the district. Um, one of the things that we learned is that at Corinth, we have a social worker one day a week. That is the extent of the social emotional support our children have in the building. <clears throat> Two hours of that one day are spent with other adults in the building. Those meetings we know are important, they're talking about students, they're planning for what's best for those students, but that leaves her under five hours a week to help our 500 students on an individual basis or a group basis. That leaves no opportunity for proactivity. She's completely reactive and we think our children need more than that and deserve more than that. So as our, as our kiddos move on from Corinth, they go to Indian Hills. Indian Hills has two counselors which serve 840 students, two counselors. Uh, the American School Counselors Association recommends a 250 student to one ratio. We are well above that at Indian Hills. These counselors are responsible for academic issues and scheduling, social emotional support, record keeping and secretarial duties as they have no administrative support in their office. And this is the first year they've had the support of a full-time social worker as well. When we move to the high school level at Shawnee Mission East, the current ratio is 460 students to one academic counselor. Their tasks include academic issues and counseling, helping students with school avoidance, anxiety, and attendance issues, and providing the following services to community, students, and parents. A national testing day in October, AP testing administration in May, which administers over 600 exams in two weeks, dual enrollment in advanced level classes, advocating for the students, which makes them the liaison between home and school, making sure students are meeting state and district graduation requirements, and ensuring students are aware of the many opportunities that Shawnee Mission has to offer so that each student can make a good choice about how to proceed to the next level. Shawnee Mission East has two social workers. Each of these serves an average of 1,000 students. Um, we have seen, as we've seen with the recent tragedies in our district, their services are also pulled into other buildings to help when those needs arise. I can tell you from personal experience that these professionals do an outstanding job, but their task is Herculean. They cannot possibly meet the needs of all those students. Uh, again, this is not a Corinth issue, it's not an Indian Hills issue, it's not a Shawnee Mission East issue. All of our Shawnee Mission students need the support of these counseling services, both reactive and proactive. I would ask you to prioritize this need as you go forward in your budgeting for next year and in the years to come, and I thank you very much for the opportunity to speak tonight. Thank you. Next. We invite Jamie Elwood to come forward. And everyone's doing great. Just a reminder of three minutes would be, be wonderful. Thank you. Hello. My name is Jamie Elwood, and I have two girls that go to Corinth Elementary. 
Lila's in third grade, and Nora's in first grade. My story is about my nine-year-old little girl, Lila, who is in the third grade and up to a few months ago loved going to school. Her love for school changed because she came caught in a mean girl situation with another student. When your daughter comes home almost every day crying, you feel helpless. Because of that situation at school, Lila complained of belly aches, headaches, and when it got really bad, she didn't <coughs> want to do. She didn't want to go to school or be in any social activities. We would talk about her feelings. We would try to see the other's perspective on the issue. We role-played scenarios and practiced how to stick up for herself. We read books and eventually consulted a professional psychologist on how to help our daughter. I emailed Lila's teacher and the school social worker. The teacher responded immediately and created an in-school intervention. The intervention consisted of having lunch meetings with her and this little girl and where they discussed their feelings and friendship. I appreciate the efforts of the teacher. However, her time is limited and her ability to deal with the situation is very small. We stayed in communication, but eventually the teacher wrote back and she said, I am not a counselor and I don't know what to do next. Teachers are not counselors. Counselors are trained professionals who know how to manage the murky waters of social aggression and yo-yo friendships that are so prevalent in our elementary school. <laughs> elementary school counselors spend much of the time working with students on social interaction. They deal with social aggression and subversive bullying. Counselors are specifically trained on conflict mediation in a way that parents and teachers are not. They are equipped to help students navigate the tricky social and emotional landscape. Counselors have time and the flexibility built into their schedule to address issues as they arise. And counselors, individual children, counselors children individually and in small groups in the ways that teachers can't. Teachers wear many hats, but this is not one that they should wear. As a special education teacher, when I see students with need, whether it's academic, social, or behavioral, I can access multiple layers of intervention for them. But when children have social and emotional needs in elementary school, those layers are not available. So that the layers end up having to be your parents, teachers, or a therapist, if you have enough money to afford a school or a child psychologist. Maslow's hierarchy of needs states that in order for children to learn their basic in order for children to learn, their basic need must be met. I can provide most of her basic needs, but I cannot provide her emotional needs at school when she is getting, when she's a target of social bullying. I'm a both a parent and a teacher. I have more tools and training than most parents, and I know my child better than any teacher. With all of that, I am at a loss on how to help her. I do not expect a school counselor to solve her problems, but I do expect a school counselor will provide the foundation to equip her and her peers with coping skills, <laughs> conflict mediation, and the ability to be a good friend. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Next is Sarah Mackey. McKay. I have a first grader and a sixth grader at Corinth Elementary. I'm Sawyer Sarah McKay. And I have another perspective. Um, I am the mother of the child that frequently disrupts the classroom. He's a first grader. 
and he's in a school with no counselor. Um, he's wonderful and darling and smart and disruptive and angry and hard. And we work on skills to help calm my son down. We see therapists, we give him daily medication, we pay to see a private psychologist and psychiatrist and play therapist. I don't work, I stay home so I can be at the school as needed, pick him up when things come up and be there as much as I can possibly to support the teacher and to support the school with my son. I take my responsibility as a mom very seriously and I don't expect the school to take on my whole burden. But his breakdowns still happen in the classroom and they entail balled up fists and mad angry eyes, refusal to transition to the next classroom activity or even the next classroom, screaming, irrationally getting mad at friends, and he often takes every interaction harder and more personally than his peers. And here's why this is important. Because when my son has a breakdown, every kid in his classroom gets impacted. The teacher has to stop the lesson and take time from every other child in that class to calm my son down. This can take five minutes, 15 minutes, an hour. One time it took half a day. Um, this is so stressful on me as a parent. I don't want my child to take away from the other kids learning. And this impacts my son, his teacher, but really equally the other kids in the classroom. There's no one in our school right now to step in to help during this time. His teacher is amazing, and she has to deal with it, and she does it well. Um, but there's a price, that whole time price and stopping the education of everybody else to manage this crisis that comes up with my son. Um, in extreme situations, the principal stops and takes, takes my son. Um, and he did for three hours one day. Um, and that then takes the time away that the principal needs for the other 500 kids in the school. Um, the presence of a counselor in his elementary school, to me, would make a huge impact that I can see. Um, an immediate help would be that an expert can come and help my son decompress. Um, it could be in a calm environment when he's stressed out and overstimulated and not take away from the other kids. On a continual basis, a counselor could give on days that we see these things coming. You normally can recognize as it's starting to happen Either I could alert the counselor or the teacher does too. Um, they could proactively check in with the counselor, take breaths, sing a song, work with clay. These are all decompression skills that we use at home and that he needs, but he just can't stop once it starts. He can't settle down in a chaotic environment, and so all of his peers get to see and experience and have time taken away from their education because of classroom or, um, breaks. Um, and there are good reasons for my son's breakdowns. He has seizures. He's had epilepsy since he was 14 months. He's on pharmaceutical medications that make it hard for him to control his emotions, has severe ADHD. He's had two brain surgeries, the second of which at age four entailed them having to scrape scar tissue off his frontal lobe, the part that helps the brain regulate emotions. But as unique as his reasonings are, his behavior is not unique. Many kids with ADHD or trauma or anxiety or autism need more specialized help and they need a person there that's trained to deal with it. Um, and the teachers need this resource. I trained my son's teacher on how to decompress. I gave her all the tools. We go back and forth constantly. There is no one, for the most part, that she can go to for her resources. It is all everything that I brought in from my experts that fortunately we've been paid off, you know, we've been able to do privately. And so, until we get counselors in the Shawnee Mission Education School or 
the ed elementary schools, all of the students' education will be impacted. Thank you. Thank you. Next is Elizabeth Wallace. Good evening. My name is Elizabeth Wallace, and I start my son, Nicholas, started his school year at Ray Marsh Elementary, and I am very grateful to your willingness to listen to my story. When my family moved here in 1979, my parents planned to register me as a second grader in a private religious school. However, the reputation of this district as a premier one encouraged them to try out public education, and I was enrolled at Prairie Elementary, then Indian Hills, followed by Shawnee Mission East. My love and awe of multiple Shawnee Mission teachers led me to pursue a teaching career, and even in college, this school district was with me, honoring me with the McEachin Scholarship at the University of Kansas. Upon graduation with a master's degree in curriculum, I began teaching at Shawnee Mission East and continued to feel supported and encouraged by the district, winning multiple teaching awards and becoming the first teaching faculty to coordinate the district-wide international baccalaureate program. When I registered my oldest, Nicholas, for his first public school experience, this past August here in Shawnee Mission in a neighborhood we were moving into, I had the normal feelings many mothers do, worried about the inevitable separation anxiety I would feel. However, my son counted down the days. No one could have prepared either of us for how difficult the transition would be. He struggled both socially and emotionally, not even wanting to walk into the building. And although I pleaded for help, there was no one there. The very tenured classroom teacher tried to some degree to be encouraging, but with her first grade class of 25, she didn't have any resources herself to tap into. Four weeks into the school year, our real estate deal was canceled, leaving us scrambling with six days to find a place to live. We found the first available home to rent and re-enrolled Nicholas in the neighborhood school, a school within Blue Valley, a district I have long felt a competition towards and, frankly, an extreme bias against due to my loyalty here. My son, traumatized by his first school experience, a father overseas and a mother scrambling to find a temporary home for her three young children, entered the Blue Valley system with severe anxiety, to say the least. Imagine my surprise when I received a phone call that very first morning, having literally peeled my child off of me at the school door that the full-time school counselor had already met with Nicholas, placed him with a series of buddies for the next eight days, discovered he loved basketball, had arranged for a basketball play date at the next recess, and ate, was eating lunch with him that afternoon. Nicholas is thriving, having a school counselor who cares for him, works with him twice a week, one-on-one, -on -one, on skills such as how to meet friends, carry a conversation, and advocate for himself. He's thrilled to see that she is in his classroom twice a month, teaching courage, prioritizing the value of hard work, handling differences, empathy, navigating emotions, and bully prevention, as an example. Three minutes would not be nearly enough time to even begin to touch on the unbelievable social and emotional systems in place at his school. 
The principal believes that if a student doesn't feel good about himself and safe, he cannot be in a position to best perform academically. I don't just believe that. I'm living that out. We are building a house and returning to Shawnee Mission. My twins are enrolling in kindergarten. As a teacher, I saw the benefits of resources that allowed my students to feel advocated for, cared for, and supported by. As a parent with a child in crisis, you cling to these resources and count these services and staff as one of your greatest blessings. Thank you. Thank you. Next is Jennifer Anist, Anist, and please correct me there. Yeah, you're fine. Anist is just fine. My name is Jennifer Anist. I have first and third grade daughters who attend Corinth Elementary School. This past December, my youngest daughter passed away after battling leukemia for 15 months. From the moment she was diagnosed, there was not adequate support in place for my children or their classmates within their school. As a family, we had our daughters speaking with a professional psychologist throughout Delaney's illness and passing. Their doctor has been amazing. Unfortunately, she does not have the time or ability to follow my girls to school, where they spend most of their time. When my daughter Gretchen didn't come to school on the Wednesday after Delaney passed away, the magnitude of what, of what had happened to our family finally hit her classmates. At one point, her teacher reported that there were five or six students in her classroom crying. There were no, was no counselor or social worker present to provide support for their teachers or their peers. The responsibility for managing this situation should not fall solely on a teacher's shoulders. If there had been a counselor, there would have been someone with adequate training to coach the staff on how to have age-appropriate <laughs> conversations with students about death and grief. Instead, my grieving children had to field questions from their peers about their sister's death. If there had been a counselor, there would have been a safe place for my nine-year-old when she became overwhelmed in the classroom, which happened every day for the first several weeks she was back at school. If there had been a counselor, there would have been a trusted adult in the building whose job was to have the time to listen to my girls when they wouldn't talk to my husband or to me about their hurt because they didn't want to compound our sadness. I know that my family situation is an outlier, but it is by no means unique for elementary students to experience loss. Parents get divorced, family members pass away, friendships fall apart, and while it may be the responsibility of families to provide professional help when needed, there is a wide chasm of issues that fall between needing no help and needing professional psychologists. The majority of our kids' waking hours are spent at school. There ought to be a counselor full-time and in every building to provide a safe place for students and to aid teachers in navigating the emotional issues that all children experience throughout childhood. When she was born, Delaney was diagnosed with Down syndrome, and from her I learned that the benefits of early interventions. Providing structure and support for kids means that with the moment a student begins to struggle, the mechanisms to help are already in place. As a school district, you would not expect a student who is struggling with reading to wait until middle school to have access to a reading specialist. 
Like reading, those skills that we associate with social and emotional capability are learned and developed through practice. It is time for Shawnee Mission School District to prioritize the emotional proficiency of students on the same level as their academic proficiency by providing school counselors in every school every day. Thank you for your time. Thank you. Next is Melissa Pat. Good evening. Hi. Um, my name is Melissa Miller Pat, and I'm the parent of three girls in the Shawnee Mission School District. Two of them are still in elementary at Corinth, and one's at Indian Hills. And I work as an emergency medicine physician at Children's Mercy. I work in the emergency department downtown and also at Kansas. And I came here tonight to talk to you guys about some of the terrible things that we see in the emergency department. And I just have to say that I don't think we need any more examples of why we need counselors in schools. I have listened to these families, and the evidence is here. We have everything we need to say what is the right thing to do for these children. Um, also, when I was listening with, to the director of security, I believe everybody in the room probably got sick to their stomach. And we know that these kids are coming into the classrooms every day. One of these kids is passing through our school, and we're doing nothing about it except getting bigger doors and more security systems. And it takes a multi-pronged approach to really address this problem. So. I really came here to talk about, you know, how awful it is in the emergency department, but I'm telling you right now, it's awful next door, and it's awful in our homes, and it's awful you guys have had it too. And it's time that Shawnee Mission steps up and does the right thing for the children and families and gets counselors in our schools. And that's it. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> next is Stacy Hetz. First, I appreciate everything you guys said. It's like really wonderful. Um, my name is Stacey Hetz. My children attend Apache IS, and I'm also a member of Education First Shawnee Mission. Today, President Trump met with state governors to discuss gun legislation pertaining to schools. Governors from Texas, Arkansas, and Alabama all stated that they had or planned to implement a school marshal program statewide. They also pushed for local control at the state or district level. As John Douglas has previously stated, we have SROs and trained personnel at all staff at middle schools and high schools, as well as serving each of our elementary schools. The suggested number of armed staff mentioned by the White House is somewhere in the range of 5 to 20%. At the elementary level, 5% of staff would be four staff members, and 20% of staff members would be 14 armed teachers or administrators. At the high school level, the numbers would range from 8 to 31 armed teachers, coaches, or personnel. If the Kansas legislation or any other legislating body mandates the arming of any personnel outside the SROs, would each of you, as elected officials, for the record, please state whether or not you would implement those regulations? We won't be providing input here, but each of us would be glad to respond for our communication to each individually. It, this item is not on the agenda right now but it's a very important issue. Could so you we post do, it to Facebook or social media, because not only going to me, but for 
uh, everyone who's in the audience and everyone who votes would sure, want to know that. Sure. You're more than welcome to uh, reach out to us individually. Uh, we wouldn't be taking action as a body at this point. But it's a very important issue, we agree, and, and we'll, we'll talk about it. As elected officials, though, we expect, you know, you answer to us. So that's the only reason I came up here to ask is that it's, it's important that we hear from you what your feelings are and how you're going to legislate and how you're going to move forward. So. We'd be glad to respond to those. Thank you very much. And the last one I have is Chris Rossell. <coughs> Mr. President, members of the board, my name's Chris Rossell. I'm concerned by the drop, 18% fall, in the participation of Johnson County 18 to 25 year olds in our electoral system. I charted the participation in 2012 and compared it to that in 2016 and we decreased participation in the election system by 18 percent of 18 to 25 year old Kansans. That's a concern to me. I have a few recommendations. I know that the board and the school system has done a number of things to redress low voter participation, low voter registration among students. However, one thing that needs to be done is since you have government classes in all the schools, within the government classes offer the opportunity to register to vote, not only in October, but also in April, so you get the second cohort of students who are turning 18 by the next election year. Another suggestion is that since in Kansas, two-thirds of those 18 to 25-year-olds who are registered to vote still don't vote. Only one-third of them don't vote. I'm sorry. Two-thirds vote, one-third don't vote is to offer them a, the opportunity to register for an advanced ballot within government class. Both of those can be done on a cell phone, online, doesn't require printing. It's just a quick few minute activity. To increase the participation in, in the elections, I've got two other suggestions. One is to discuss why to vote. That is not required to be taught in Kansas schools, but I suggest that maybe if students considered why voting, they might be more likely to vote. The next, besides discussing it, is to discuss how to select a can candidate who is consonant with one's values, whatever one's values are, how would one select a candidate who complies with those values? These are just a few small 
additions to the current government curriculum that I suggest may result in our increasing our voter participation among our youth from 18% or from 33% up closer to my group has 80% of us voting in all elections. So the concern is that if our youth don't stay engaged in our election process, if they don't feel represented, the light of America may die. And I urge you to rage, rage against the dying of the light. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you to everyone who came forward today. We appreciate all the comments and uh, ideas as well. Um, they are taken very seriously, and I, I don't want to underestimate that, that uh, although it might not be an agenda item today, these are very important items. And I will turn to Dr. Southwick if you have any comments as re regarding how might those be redirected at a future point. Well, a couple of things. We've had conversations. I know I met with uh, a couple of parents earlier in the year with respect to guidance counselors. I want to go on a record and say I'm a certified guidance counselor and spent about 15 years in the building providing that service. Uh, so I very much recognize the importance of having guidance counselors. Uh, where we are right now, and uh, at some point in time, prior to the time that I was here, um, a decision was made to, I think we had elementary counselors and budget cut times, they went away. Um, this resource, your comments, I, I take to heart. Um, I can't say I feel your pain because I don't think any of us can do that uh, for others, but I take your comments to heart. It's an issue that we look at. Um, this board will have a decision to make with respect to um, items as we move forward that help um, with at-risk funding and, and at-risk at services in our school. So it is one of the things that's on our agenda to look forward to. Um, I don't really have uh, any way to, to, out, to outline a plan tonight, um, but it would be something that the administration will continue to look at and bring forward to the board in a report in the future. So, okay. Thank you. With that, we'll move on to uh, item F, and this is the approval of minutes. Um, the board has been busy uh, with the selection of a new superintendent, thus the reason for seven items on the, uh, the minutes. I will seek a motion to approve all seven if it is so moved. Second. It's been moved. Second. And, and seconded by Mrs. Goodburn, I heard down there, uh, to approve all seven of the items on the minutes. Any discussion? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? That's 7-0. Thank you. Now we'll move on to G, which is the adoption of the agenda. I move for adoption of the agenda. Thank you, Mrs. Mack. And a second? Second. Second by Mrs. Zila. All those in favor of adopting the agenda as presented, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Nay. Thank you. 7-0. And we move on to H which is going to be the approval of routine business by consent. And uh, it's item number one. And there's a list of items that have been listed for consideration by consent. Mr. Stratton? Yes. I would like to um, remove item L16 from the consent agenda. L16. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Any other items that uh, board members would like to remove from the agenda, from the consent agenda at this point? 
Seeing none, I'll seek a motion to approve the items on the consent agenda, except for item L16. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. Second. Second by Reverend Guy. Thank you. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed, say nay. That's approved 7 0. We will now turn to item uh, L16 on the Mr. consent Stratton, agenda. Could yes. I ask to make a comment? Um, and this is for clarification, and, and had conversation with Ms. Owsley about this. Um, we haven't done snow days for a long time. Um, and uh, this was the first opportunity for us to have snow days in the four years that I've been here. And one of the things that we found that was a surprise to administration was that, uh, and the reason I bring this up is because you're going to look at summer contracts for usage of facilities with Johns County Parks and Rec Department and also the Y. But um, as we looked at uh, one of the first days that we had closed where students were in session, it was a surprise to us to find out that written into the contract several years ago it was that those care centers would be closed. Um, it's our belief, and, and Dr. Aether right now and Dr. Neal are in conversations with both agencies, that we want to try to amend that contract. Um, it may not have any um, direct effect on where we are between now and the end of the year, but I did want um, people that might be watching tonight and, and anybody that has interest as a parent is that we realize it's a hardship for parents um, who may not have a place for their children to go. So we're going to work on that. Um, again, I appreciate the opportunity to visit about that because it's really not tied to what is on the agenda, but it was important enough that I wanted uh, our parents to know that it's an issue and we're working on it. So thank you. Thank you. Uh, we have before us uh, item L16. I'm the one with questions. Yes, please go ahead. Um, so I just wanted to ask questions about the process um, that led to this decision. And um, because I just, I'm, I'm not against it or anything, but I just wanted to shed some light for somebody to shed some light on this. And also I had a question too about if, if the number of books that's, that's provided under this contract is consistent with the other buildings. Because I know this is a new building. We haven't bought books for a brand new building in a while. <laughs> And so I'm just wondering if it's consistent and also if there's any flexibility for our new, the library media specialist who will be taking over. If there's any flexibility in the selections that are, I know it's a pre-selected amount of books. So, so if you could address that. Sure. I have asked Darcy Swan to be here with us tonight in case um, specific questions were asked. So I'm going to ask her to join me um, to answer those questions. Thank you very much. Thanks, Darcy, for being here. Absolutely. Do you want me to repeat my questions? Good evening. No, I think the first question you asked was about the process, correct? Perfect. Yes. Yeah. Very good. Um, well, hello to our new board members. I have yet to meet you. I'm Darcy Swan. I'm an elementary curriculum coordinator. Um, I've been working with our library media specialists for about three years now. Um, so this process really began, and I've been in the district 20 years. So this is the first school opening I've been a part of. And um, so we took a little bit of research on our part. Um, Dr. Hubbard and I reached out to Blue Valley and Olathe, to our counterparts um, in library media there. And um, we actually visited a Blue Valley school, Wolf Springs, and really did a lot of question asking, learned about their successes, their 
celebrations, their challenges, and we really wanted to get an idea of what we're really, you know, facing when we put together our framework. So once we had that information, we came back and um, really created a game plan um, based on information I received from media specialists. I get an opportunity to meet with them quarterly. And through those quarterly council meetings, I really gained a lot of information about what we deemed most necessary to, you know, for, for library media collection development. So with that, I worked with Becky Collins on the RFP, which was mostly logistics, just in terms of how many books we think we needed. Um, Lisa Reedman at Benninghoven is an excellent resource for me because our, as far as I know, Lenexa Hills is going to look very similar to Benninghoven in terms of the footprint of the library. So according to Lisa, um, she has a collection of about 10,000 books. So when we were doing the RFP process, we knew kind of how many print materials we, we needed. Um, we knew we wanted to leave a little room to grow because we want Lenexa Hills to definitely put their own, you know, stamp on it, um, let them have some autonomy to meet the needs of their community with the selections that they want to make. Um, but with that said, you know, Lisa said, you know, I'm really trying to get my collection to be about 10,000. Um, aesthetically, it looks good in the library, but it also is just enough for um, the Benninghoven population to feel like they've got equity and access with relevant materials. So we kind of knew what we were shooting for in terms of print material, and then we knew we wanted some ebooks. Currently, we use the um, Access 360 ebook portal with Johnson County Library, so we um, have quite a bit of circulation with ebooks there. But we also knew we wanted to have some ebooks available, particularly multi user um, and perpetual licenses, so that they wouldn't expire. Um, we knew that our collection needed to be um, the most relevant um, in terms of you know, topics related to community needs, to our curriculum. Um, luckily, most of the vendors we work with have worked with our district in the past on multiple different, you know, different projects. So they know our standards and they um, are, I, I, this is a shout out to our librarians. They are the most dedicated, the most um, hardworking. They have such expertise and they work with these vendors and they let them know exactly what we're needing in terms of curriculum ties, in terms of, um, you know, initiatives that we may have going. Um, so these vendors kind of know our district and know what we're looking for. So when Becky and I put the RFP together, you know, we put it out, we had three vendors um, send back, and then Dr. Hubbard and I looked through those um, proposals, and really what we were looking for um, was the vendor that was going to give us the most print materials for our money. Um, and currently the, um, the proposal that you're looking at tonight, which is Mackin, um, they're providing us over 9,000 print materials and about 868, I believe, um, ebooks. So less than 10% of our collection are, we're asking to be ebooks because we have access through the Johnson County Library. We also invest in Capstone, which is um, an ebook platform that all of our libraries have access. So Lenexa Hills is going to look very similar in terms of um, World Book, PubbleGo, PubbleGo Next, Capstone. Um, but what we really want is. Um, once we get approval for a vendor, I have three work sessions scheduled in March that every elementary library media specialist is invited to, to help build the collection. Because again, they're the experts. Um, I will facilitate those meetings. I've asked anyone interested um, to attend. And what happens is the vendors provide us a list of resources, and then we can vet those based on our needs. 
Um, we've got some room and flexibility in terms of if we want more nonfiction versus fiction, if we want more biographies versus reference materials. Um, but I'm really going to call upon them in a collaborative manner um, to really help us build that collection so that moving forward, on day one, Lenexa Hills will have a well-crafted collection in their library with room to grow. Um, again, probably shooting for about 10,000 books, um, but starting them with a little over 9,000. That was your first question, process. <laughs> I hope I answered that. And actually, you, you uh, answered the second question, too, and the third question as well, flexibility. <laughs> so you did it all. Excellent. I don't have any other questions. <laughs> Wonderful. I have a Go ahead. Sure. So do you track circulation by any chance like from year to year or from book to book? Like, can we look at a snapshot of, like, say, how many books a kid checked out one mm -hmm. year versus the subsequent year or what books are popular and what what's being utilized so Absolutely. we can track to see? Mm -hmm. um, through our destiny uh, management system, and I don't necessarily track that on a district level, but our librarians have ways in which they can pull reports from destiny. They can look at um, the materials that are most checked out. They can, um, I'm not sure if they can track um, student to student in terms mm -hmm. of what, say again. I know I've got, Karen Meyer over here and Jan, hey Jan. Um, you know, I don't track that from a district level. I know that they do a great job of pulling reports. They're always teaching me different things that they're doing with their reporting systems out of Destiny. I can tell you that I do receive reports from the Johnson County Library, and as of right now, the Shawnee Mission School District has the most checkouts of eBooks um, of any other district in the county through our Access 360 portal. I'm always sending them the updates on um, those checkouts every month when I receive them from D at Johnson County and um, our Access 360 representative. Um, but what I can tell you is when I pull um, librarians together to have collaborative conversations, um, they're always talking about um, best practice and they're oftentimes using information they're getting from Destiny, information they have through their reporting systems, their observations of what kids are checking out, the questions kids are asking. Um, you know, and I do want to shout out too, I know Gary Strout is not here tonight, but he is um, a library media specialist at Broken Arrow and he has taken upon himself to create a professional learning community for our um, library staff at elementary. And I know they get together monthly and they've talked about everything from um, reading instruction on a primary level to um, how to use Apple Classroom in a library instructionally. And you know, they're always getting together and talking about just how can we make it better? How can we grow our program? How can we um, just make the library an extension of our classroom? About two and a half years ago, I had a cadre of librarians together who wrote a mission statement. You can find that mission statement on our media services website. And with that, they had some value statements that really just kind of outlined professionally who we are and what we're about. And we really, um, in library media, have made it kind of our mission to be an extension of the classroom, to make sure we understand curricularly what our kids need, what our teachers need, and make sure that we are that resource. They're also working really hard to teach every day. So um, they're, I think with a lot of change that they've encountered over the last few years, they are um, just going full steam ahead with just some great initiatives that we have going in library, but part of that collection development is a huge part of that. So um, we are tracking those things. They're tracking it more at a building level. 
But okay. Uh, do we have anything in place for if circulation drops? Like if, like if we note at a building that circulation is dropping, that kids aren't checking out as many books, is there something that tr is triggered? Do we, are we, I guess, you know, is, mm -hmm. are e-books being checked out more and regular books are not being checked out? Is that just mm -hmm. happening over time or? Are there right well you know like I said we're not really tracking that at a district level but I know that when librarians are together and they're talking about just their basic you know um, month to month conversations they are talking about what's relevant and what they're being asked for in terms of by students and by teachers so you know I have not asked them to bring their data to the table in a media um, council meeting we could absolutely do that I really feel like they're professionals and they I, I trust that they are watching for those anomalies or watching for those dips in their data and that they're talking with their students and talking with their teachers to make sure that we are meeting their needs mm -hmm. um, you know I think those are things that happen um, very organically when you have really great relationships in buildings and I feel like our librarians do a really great job of connecting with their teachers and, and making those relationships and I feel like they have a really good handle on what's happening in their library. Now that may look different from <coughs> Neiman to Marsh to Shawano to Corinth um, because our, our needs may be different, our community may be asking for different things, but I'm very confident that they're they're tracking those, those dips in their um, checkouts or are there increases like I said we keep continually going up in our ebook checkout on our access 360 but um, you know I think I reached out to Karen just last week about her collection development and she has over 12,000 print books um, at Neiman because the footprint of her library allows that and so you know I have all the faith in the world that Karen is very watchful of um, you know, if, if kids aren't checking out, making sure she's on top of why that is. Thank you. You're welcome. Anything Anything else? I appreciate you answering questions. Absolutely. Anyone else? I move Thank approval of L16. Thank you. Thank you. It's been moved to approved L16. Second. And seconded, Mrs. Mack. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. 7-0. Thank you for that. We move down to action item O one, Dr. Southwick. Yes, moving on to uh, talk about Lenexa Hills again. As you know, it's a brand new facility, um, and one of the things that we have to do is look at the FF&E, which is furniture and fixtures for that building. Um, it's a little bit different because in other buildings where we've rebuilt, there have been equipment and um, items that we've been able to take. This building is brand new. And Dr. Hubbard works very closely with Bob Robinson, not only to build the budget, but to work with staff to select what would need to go in the building. And if you have any questions with respect to this, I would defer to Dr. Hubbard. Or Dr. Hubbard, if you've got any comments or anything you'd like to tell the board. We'll say this, this budgeted amount is a little bit more than we spent on our other rebuilds, but again, it's because we're looking at everything being new. Uh, we do believe we've got some contingency in this number, so we don't anticipate that we would need to spend all this money, but we're asking for your authority to do that, to 
make sure that we have things ready for students in fall. <laughs> Seconded. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. Moving 01. All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Opposed, nay. That's 7 0. Thank you. We move on to action item P1. Dr. Southwick? Yes. Uh, your action on this item tonight will extend the contracts of our administration. Um, all of those administrators that are presented to you would be from the cabinet down. So our directors, assistant directors, coordinators, principals, and others, you will be extending their contracts. Some of those people have operated on a one-year contract, and you will offer the extension of that one year for next year. Some of those people operate on a two-year contract, and you will operate the extension so that after this they will have that same two-year contract. Uh, those recommendations come to us by staff. I want to say... This doesn't change any compensation or any material piece of the contract other than the date of the extension. Uh, and this is the typical process that we've gone through over the last several years. So real quick clarification. So you said from the cabinet on down. Did you mean below the cabinet? Below the cabinet. All right. Exactly. You said cabinet on down. Yeah. From the, below yeah, I'm, the cabinet. I'm thinking the lower level. Yeah. yeah. There you go. Thank you. Questions? Yes. Um, Dr. Southwick, uh, we had, um, I had asked you a, a question about this. I would ask that you maybe just kind of reiterate that of why we are doing this now. Yeah. Um, typically, um, with administrative contracts, if administrators were going to be in a position to look for another job, well, let's say that tonight you're on a one-year contract and you don't extend that or... This would be the time of the year then administrators are being hired. As we look right now, um, tonight on the agenda, uh, there was administration that have left the district, and we anticipate that that will continue. This is the season for that. In addition to that, with administrative contracts, because of the decisions that we make, uh, 
Uh, we don't have a continuing contract like the teachers would. Um, generally, with a multi-year contract, when the board or the administration would decide not to extend that next year, it sends a pretty clear message in terms of now might be the time for you to, to look elsewhere for a position, or they may choose that. Um, so it's, it's the time of year. Um, obviously, we don't want to do this in the fall because we, we don't have enough. Um, we're working through that contract. Likewise, the, the position of the district before was to wait and let administration know in May, uh, sometimes at the end of the May, that they wouldn't be offered a contract for the following year. And that's really just probably not fair for, for anybody, but particularly our administrators. So um, this is why this is the time. Thank you for that. Oh. Other questions? I'll seek a motion. I would move approval of the district-level administrative contracts. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. I'll second. Second to Mrs. Goodburn. Any additional discussion on the motion? <coughs> Questions? All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed? Please say nay. 7-0. Thank you for that. We'll move on to Q, action item Q number one. Dr. Southwick? Yeah, so this is uh, board policy that you review. Um, it's probably pertinent for us to review it right now because I will tell you as the interim superintendent, I found out on the day of the election in the primaries for the first time ever in Shawnee Mission that there were people because of a long-standing difference between our precincts and the actual boundaries for the five high schools that there are some people that get a chance to vote for a representative that sits on this board, but it may not be the school that they send their children to. So there's a, this was established um, many years ago by state law. There's a, a balance that the five um, feeder patterns need to be kept um, in terms of overall constituents, and that's not necessarily done by changing our district boundaries, thank goodness, because we know how painful that is. This is more about looking at the census and then making some determinations. But the board should review this. Russ is here tonight. Um, he's the one that's responsible to work, to look at all the data, and I think has a presentation tonight, and hopefully I didn't spill too much of your thunder. Um, <laughs> I don't think Russ would mind. Yeah. So. Um, well, I'll skip my first half then. Like uh, Dr. Southwick said, this is governed by two state statutes. I look at it once a year, um, and so we're uh, updating the board policy from 2013, I believe. Um, my recommendation tonight is not to change any of the board member boundaries, but all we're doing is updating the board policy to mirror what the Johnson County Election Office has for precincts. Um, so this is a map uh, that is provided us by the Johnson County Election Office. I circle some areas where, like Dr. Southwick says, that the boundaries for student attendance and the boundaries for uh, elections don't line up in particular. Um, let me go to page two. So to give you an example, um, we can hone in there on um, 308. That's in the bottom left circle. So that'd be... So the highlighted areas represent board member boundaries. 
the blue dash line is the Shawnee Mission student attendance areas. So one of the, the guidelines in the statute says you, you have to keep your precincts whole. You can't split those. We don't have the authority to split those. So 308, uh, it's hard to pick up, but it, there is an outline on 308, and the, the dash line kind of splits it right down the middle. So those that are on the, the south part of that line, they will attend Shawnee Mission West, but they vote for Shawnee Mission Northwest. Um, if that precinct was pulled in to the west, then the opposite would happen. The kids would attend Northwest and they'd vote for West. So this is an example where your two boundaries don't match up. Um, along the bottom, I guess I'll add, that is the population from 2010. That's the numbers that we still work with. So the next time that we'll get updated population will be the next census in 2020. Um, so our goal is, by state law, um, is to try to spread that population as even as possible between the five areas. We can't be 5% above or below the mean. Uh, as you can see, Wes is, is pushing it, um, but pretty good on the rest of them. And we have to maintain the whole precincts and try to maintain our high school boundary lines as close as possible. Um, so that's what we're trying to capture here. Um, so my, again, my recommendation is all we're doing is updating the precincts in our board policy uh, and no recommendation for changes in uh, board member boundaries. Any questions? I have a question. I'm yes. sorry, Reverend Guy. I, I, um, I just wanted to point out, I had an opponent one time from uh, Q207, lived in the north attendance boundary, but did, I guess that meant that he had to run for the northwest position because that's where his voting precinct was. And I think that as we go forward, we could point that out to the election office that that also disqualifies people from running for the office for which they live in the school boundary of. Just a point of information. Mm -hmm. But we, we decide our own, our board members, our boundaries. You, you guys decide, I guess. Okay. Well, he lived in Q207 and ran for the Northwest area. So. Well, I mean, we have to, we decide what precincts fall right. into okay. which area. But it, but it has That's an impact greater, it, it has, an, not only does it have an impact on the voters, but it also has an, okay. an impact on the people running for election. That's the point I'm trying to make. Yes. Sorry. Yes, go ahead. I think part of the frustration is that um, this was unexpected. People were surprised to go to the polling area and then be told they couldn't vote. <laughs> so how do we help? get the word out. If people go to the Johnson County Election Office page and put in their zip code, does it tell them which school pre precinct or seat they're voting for? Or is that something that, that the district has to communicate to people? I, yeah, I don't know that. So I, I can answer part of that. Okay. And that is that anyone can submit their address and it'll pull up the ballot. So they can look at the ballot in advance of showing up. And, and I believe it does up. say what position you vote for, too. Yeah. It does. Yeah. Okay. yeah. They get a card in the mail, too, I believe, that even identifies that mm -hmm. when it says where you're voting. But there's a lot of presumptions that folks are reading that and seeing that. Well, yes, when your children attend yeah. schools in one area, the assumption is. Um, so I think it's helpful to have these red circles drawn to let people in those neighborhoods know that mm -hmm. they will want to check ahead of time. Yeah. This, this map is on our website. 
-hmm. But in 2020, you'll be updating all this information, and these might possibly It'll probably change. be 2021, whenever okay. the okay. census numbers come out. Okay. Yeah. And, Mr. Knapp, we're looking at this as a different time of year than we used to, and that's yes. because... Um, yes. We used to do this review in November and October, because we used to have two readings, and but it also correlated with the April elections. So now the elections have moved to November. Uh, I'm, I'm gonna, I plan to do this in February, March of each year in preparation for the August primary. There's a 90-day... Uh, window where you can't change any uh, boundaries prior to uh, that election. So March or February, March would work a uh, good time, especially if we're going to change anything. We can get that notified to the election office. Yes, Dr. And, and just to clarify, this does not impact our high school boundary areas. It just creates an inconsistency between voting precincts. I mean, this has no impact, right? So I just no. wanted to be clear. Yeah, this is all clear. voting. This is just so the the inconsistency is on the part of the voter who's going that might live in that odd little bubble. Um, but we're not going to move high school boundaries to. That's correct. Did I say no. that enough? <laughs> yeah. Thank you. I just want to make sure well, that was really clear. We'll say that loud and clear. <laughs> a different another, animal. Another thing that I, I want to bring to the attention of anybody that might watch there or in the audience, and I know the board knows this, but if I, my kids go to West, but I have to wait for two years to vote for Patty if she decides to run again in the Northwest area, I still get to vote for a representative on the board. And when we talk about the areas that you represent that generally line up with the high school attendance boundaries, a reminder to everybody is you represent every person in this district. Mm -hmm. It's just that not everybody gets to vote for you, but when you sit as a collective body, you represent every constituent in this district. So um, although there are issues that, that come that can be vocalized with respect to uh, a, an individual boundary for a, a feeder district, it's the message and, that, uh, and the, that can be sent is sent to all seven of the board members with an equal responsibility. So um, hopefully there's some solace in that, that people don't get left out. Um, it doesn't mean that I, if I, my student goes to West that I can't contact Reverend Guy and say, hey, I know I didn't get to vote for you, but I got an issue at my school and I can share that information or with any of the board members. So it just comes down to when you're eligible to vote for that person. Thank you. Any other questions? Thank you for that. We'll I would suggest you. one reading. It's, it's mandatory you do this, and if you can waive a second reading, that would be great. Great. And I don't know that we need a second. Yeah. So we're going to seek a motion to approve as is. So moved. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Second. Thank you, and that was Dr. Sinclair. Thank you. Uh, it's been moved and seconded to approve action item Q1. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. 7-0. Thank you for that. We'll move on to Q2, and uh, Dr. Southwick. Yeah, another important issue with respect to our um, ongoing sustainability for our technology, and I've asked Executive Director Lane to be here tonight. He's worked for this process 
with Russ and Dr. Atho over the last couple of years to build a long-range plan um, for us to be able to refresh our devices across uh, the district. And uh, we're going to ask you for some authority to do that tonight. And Drew's here to explain that. So, Drew, thank you. Certainly. Uh, recognizing you've been here for quite some time this evening, <clears throat> I've attempted to distill this into three basic questions. The first question, uh, why are we making this request? The second question would be, what are we requesting? And the third question would be, why are, why are we requesting it right now? So let's start with why are we requesting this? About four years ago, the district embarked on the digital learning initiative to provide all students K through 12 with a, a device for them to use in their hands in their academic pursuits. Tonight, we're asking to refresh a portion of those devices. And we do this so that we can continue to support that good work. We'd like to continue to support the success that we've seen, the, the leveling of a playing field, so to speak, for the students in their academic pursuits, and uh, continue that, that excellence that, that we've had up to this point. The second part uh, of the answer to that question is that we would like to provide this level of support by equipping our students and faculty members with new devices. Uh, so. Uh, what exactly are we requesting in that? Since, since you know why we're asking, what is it we're asking you for? The way we've put this request to the board is, in essence, we're asking for authority to expend up to a certain number of dollars. And that dollar amount for us is at a maximum of $11 million. It's important to understand that that request is made through a pre-planned and strategic plan for capital outlay expenditure. When we initially did the one-to-one, -one, we purchased everything at one time. And as we looked at capital outlay and moving down the road, we realized that doing that every so often at, at $20 million or more a pop was not sustainable. But the success that we see and the benefit we see of the one-to-one -one is something that we felt compelled to continue. And so we looked for a way to expand capital outlay dollars on something like this so that we could keep capital outlay in the black have capital outlay left over for uh, other projects in the district, uh, like Bob Robinson's uh, just ongoing infrastructure maintenance, those types of things. And so we sat down and came up with a plan for doing this. This particular purchase is split into two parts. The first part of this will be for hardware. The hardware part of it comes to just about $10.7 million, and it's for approximately 12,000 devices. These devices will be for faculty and staff and our 9 through 12 students. Now that $10.7 million is actually divided up over four years worth of time. So we're not expending 10.7 at one time. The first three years of the agreement is interest free. There is no charge for the money for the first three payments. The fourth payment is at 0.99%. Cost the district approximately, and Russell can check me on the number if I'm incorrect here, but I think it's somewhere right in the neighborhood of about $158,000 to borrow the money for that that last year. So over the course of a four-year deal of 10.7, it would cost the district an additional $158,000 to borrow the money. To help us recover some of that, we timed this or we structured this so that the lease purchase agreement itself doesn't last any longer than the device's lifespan that we intend to keep. The reason for doing that at four years is that market value on those devices allows us to recover some of those dollars back into capital outlay. In this case, we think we'll be able to recover somewhere in the neighborhood of $2 million back by reselling the devices now. Some school districts you'll see will go five, six, or even seven years on a device, and those devices have very little, if any, market value at the end of that. 
we're in a fortunate position that we have capital outlay dollars to use for this. Those capital outlay dollars are sustainable in when we spend in this fashion, and we can recover some of those dollars by doing a sale. The second part of the purchase that is, uh, is why we're asking for the up to $11 million is for services to help us support the collection, preparation, and then final distribution. These services are one, it's a one-time expenditure. Um, these are for things like helping us make sure that we get all the devices correctly uh, asset tagged and to the right buildings and that they're in the correct groups for scoping, for delivering lots of students, these types of back-end logistical processes that we have to have. Additionally, we're reaching out to some of our local strategic partners to help us with this process of making sure that we dot the I's and cross the T's and make this as much of a non-event as you can for refreshing 12,000 devices over the course of, a, of what amounts to about 12 weeks total. Okay. So then, why are we requesting it now? As I stated before, we came up with a strategic plan for making a sustainable purchase program for maintaining the district's digital learning initiative. At this point in time, we strike a good balance between having updated hardware that is at a lifespan that it's, it's, it's still functional. It's functional enough that we see market value in it so that we can resell those devices and at the same time provide faculty, staff, and students with a device that performs well with the different requirements we have from the different software platforms we do, those types of things. You know, in that, in that arena of the school district, we, we support a lot of different software platforms out there, as you would expect. When you have students that, that are really, really young to students who are just about to enter the workforce or go on to college, you can imagine the number of applications you have to support so that they can achieve their academic goals. Secondly, if we act at this time, it allows the various departments across the district, because it's not just my team that will have to be do some preparation to get ready for this. We have buildings that will need some time to prepare, those types of things. Doing this at this point in time gives us some lead time on that so we can be prepared to make this as, as, uh, as smooth as we possibly can. And then that in turn allows us to do a successful collection, preparation, and distribution of those devices to take place. So that was a lot of information at once. I distilled it down to those three questions, but I'm certainly glad to answer any questions that you have in, in whatever detail you need. Questions? Yes, Mrs. Osley. Go ahead. Go ahead. Turn my microphone back on. Um, English major, attorney, math is not my strong suit. I just want to go over those numbers that we went over in the agenda review really quick so that I can be clear on them. So we're looking at $11 million over four years minus the $2 million that we'll likely retain back from the selling of the ones that we have now. So $9 million over four years, so less than $2 million a year to put the laptop in all the high schoolers' hands. And also, that is covering the hardware for, is that also covering the computers in this building here for the um, special programs like the engineering program and then the journalist students and all of that, or is that, no? Those are in a separate refresh cycle of five years. Okay. When we put the plan together, we divided all of our devices into three, four, and five-year lifespans. Three-year lifespans for the tablets, four years for the rest of the one-to-one -one devices because they get moved around all the time. And then things that are fixed, labs, those types of things that, you know, most people don't pick up the project lead the way the computer, I hope they're not picking those computers up. <laughs> those don't move, and so those are on a five-year refresh cycle. We have other computers out there, uh, you know, our, our, our business and finance team, they use uh, they used, uh, fixed computers, those types of things. They're on the five-year life cycle. 
This request tonight is for 9 through 12 MacBook Airs and then all K through 12, all faculty and staff MacBook Airs and a smattering of others. So support personnel, um, some of the folks that you, you've seen up here this evening that work with, with teachers and with students, those folks, any one-to-one -one device. And we do have those numbers broken down in, into different areas. If you're interested in seeing those, I'd be more than happy to share those with you. Thank you. Um, so most of the money is going for the hardware, for the computers themselves, and then the additional for the technical support, you said that's just during the rollout phase. So this does not include any on-site tech support um, for the first year while these new devices are, are uh, being used. No. The way we've structured the purchase, these services are really for, it, it's during the collection period. It's light there because most of that we can handle internally. There'll be some work that's done over the summer that we'll get assistance with, and then there's some assistance we'll, we'll get in the fall when the devices go back out. There's definitely a, a curve in our support, uh, and it's, it's high in amplitude at those times, and so that's what we're trying to offset. We have, over the course of this current uh, academic year, this current fiscal year, we have looked at things like data in our web ticketing system, um, anecdotal evidence. We've, we've talked about it very briefly. We need to discuss it some more in the technology advisory group about what type of support volume is out there, and does it warrant the, the, the hiring of, of additional FTE? At this point in time, we think that if we're able to utilize strategic partners during that high, that peak season, we won't need to hire FTE during the rest of the year because we see dramatic drop-off after distribution. Assuming distribution goes well, we begin to see a dramatic drop-off in the number of tickets that are submitted by folks at the building level. We see it pick up again in the spring, and it usually happens around, surprisingly, not um, <laughs> testing season. Uh, testing season tends to generate additional tickets, whatnot, and as you can imagine, those tickets are split probably not exactly 50-50, but about half of them are about the internet being slow because everybody's trying to test and everybody who's, been, who's done testing is trying to do other things like stream media. And the other part is there's something going on with the, with the testing platform. Those are kind of the day-to-day -day type of things that we try to handle with the FTE that we have. It's not something that we are going to just stop looking at because that's the case today. It's kind of an ongoing topic for us, but that's where we are with it to this point in time, what we looked at it so far. And this is, um, this is the same computer that's being used, it's just a more recent addition, I assume. So is there any additional training for teachers with this rollout, or since it's the same type of computer, you're not planning to do any additional training? I've not purchased any Apple Professional Services for, for that part of it. Uh, they are essentially the same device. We're not making a, a major switch up in any of the software platforms and those types of things, so I had not anticipated that. Um, I cannot speak for you know the leadership and learning team, CNI, if they, they may or may not. I do know that over the course of the year, they have a number of professional development uh, days that they use, and, and they may use some of that time for these types, those types of pursuits. Okay, thank you. <coughs> Dr. Sinclair. Um, the, oh, I, I have now an opportunity to delve down a little bit deeper then um, in the question. The, one of the, so I have a high schooler, and one of the things that, that um, she and her friends have been experiencing is battery not lasting through the day. So is, so obviously replacing the whole laptop would would address that is there was that unique to this or is there a way to kind of anticipate in that in the future for battery replacement to extend the life or 
So that's one of, the, that's one of many reasons why we, we kind of settled on the four-year plan, because mm -hmm. we recognize that four years there are things like batteries mm -hmm. that, that uh, can go bad. Unfortunately, right now, um, it's, it's a battle against chemistry. The, the battery chemistry that we have today is, is very, very good. Don't get me wrong. Mm -hmm. um, lithium, lithium, lithium ion batteries and, and those types are very, very good, but they still are subject to degradation over time. They can be degraded more quickly or more slowly, depending on how the battery is treated, those types of things. We try to provide guidelines for how to take care of the battery uh, so that it lasts longer. But at the end of the day, when we've got 12,000 of those things out there, some people take better care of the battery than others do, and sometimes the battery just doesn't perform the way we expect it to, and other batteries perform better than we expect it to. So trying to balance all of that out, one of the reasons why we settled on the four-year uh, refresh cycle. Thanks. Any other questions? All right. Thank you, Drew. Thank you. Thank you. With that, I'll seek a motion to approve the uh, item Q2. So moved. Thank you, Mrs. Mack. Second. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. All those in favor of approving Q2, please say aye. 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 Those opposed, nay. 7 0. We move on to Q3. Dr. Southwick. Yes, we have uh, ongoing, improve ongoing improvements with asphalt. Um, uh, Mr. Robinson's worked very closely um, to look at projects. <laughs> it was one of the um, infrastructure issues that we said that we would be working on with respect to the bond issue. And the work this summer will total $761,493. That was the lowest bid. We did seek bids at different buildings, um, but we had one contractor that came in that basically was low, so we'd make that recommendation. Uh, it will be paid for from um, bond dollars, and the work will be done this summer. Great. Thank you. Any questions about the item? If not, I'll seek a motion to approve. So moved. Thank Second. you, Mrs. Goodburn. Thank you, Reverend Guy. It's been moved and seconded to approve item Q3. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 All those opposed, nay. That's 6-0. And with that, we move on to Q4. Q4 is a bid for the new scoreboard structure and scoreboard at Shawnee Mission uh, District Stadium North location. If you remember, we have installed a new state-of-the-art scoreboard at South. Given the fact that we have two competitive stadiums that all of our five school, uh, feeder schools use, we wanted to make sure that North had the same kind of amenity that we put in at South. As a reminder, and we talked about this before, the district's basically um, looking to buy the scoreboard so that we have a new scoreboard, and we have broken out and looked at a process, uh, and Mr. Robinson, Mr. Kramer, and also Shauna Samuel, are working to sell ads on those boards that basically would recover the cost of the video portion of the board. So it's a shared cost um, for us to be ready for next year. We need to seek your approval tonight. So I believe this work starts, uh, Mr. Robinson, this summer and will be up, we hope, by our seasons in the fall. That's correct. Okay. Right. I'd, move, I'd move approval. Q4. Okay, it's been moved and approved. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Thank you, Mrs. Zila. It's approved and seconded to uh, move to approve Q4. Any additional questions? 
All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. That's 6-0. And with that, we move to Q5. Number five, um, we have fought the Elevet at Indian Hills since I've been here. Uh, every time we turn around, we've sent somebody over to fix it. It's not actually an elevator. It was, uh, I think, an interest to save dollars years ago when they did some remodeling at Indian Hills. Um, we think it's reached the end of the life cycle, mainly because of its aggravation and non-use for our, our students and our, our parents and faculty that need to have handicap accessibility. So we made the decision to um, have the architects do the design and we will be putting a full-fledged elevator. I believe that the structure for the elevator is, will be on the outside of the building, so we won't uh, disturb that much of the inside building. Am I correct with that? That is correct. And we hopefully get some footings and stuff started before school is out so we can make sure the project gets finished on time. So um, we're glad to be able to recommend this to you, and we hope that it will reduce the number of calls that Tyler and Bob get with respect to an Elevet that doesn't work. So I will uh, tell you that the total of that elevator is $451,500. <coughs> and this Ouch. is an example, excuse me, this is an example of capital funds that we have that are budgeted for Bob to be able to do infrastructure projects um, along the way. So this is, would be an example of that. Thank you. Seek a motion to approve. So moved. Thank you, Mrs. Goodburn. Second. Thank you, Mrs. Zeal. It's been moved and seconded to approve action item Q5. Any additional questions? All those in favor, please say aye. Aye. Those opposed, nay. 7-0. Did I say the right name down here? Yes. Okay. <laughs> we move on the agenda to action item. This would be uh, S. We had not, we've moved the, the policy uh, discussion to that level. <laughs> Want to proceed with the discussion there, or are we ready to, <laughs> are we ready to, okay. to move forward? Let's do this. <laughs> it's not on the agenda. Well, we moved it there and we didn't finish in the work. Session. Yeah, we so the, the, the action that was going to take place was going to be under D1. And because we didn't take action there, we moved to an action item under the board. So, well, first of all, I'll, I'll see if you're open to the item of adding it to the agenda at this point for discussion. We already approved the agenda. Yeah. We approved the agenda. Did, it, did we state prior to going into that that we were going to talk about it at this, at this point? Yes, we did. I, I did, yeah. So but it is it, part of the agenda. But listed back up during the, the discussion, is that correct? Correct. It's now, it's now an area where there's potential action to be taken if we are ready to take tax, action on any of it. Were we going to finish talking about the guidelines, too? Yes. Okay. Are we going to do that tonight, or are we just going to try and take action? Whatever is available, for, for we're going to take motions and take action, as opposed to wordsmithing, I think, at this point. Okay, so, so we're not wordsmithing, so we're not discussing the guidelines. Section. Only the low-hanging fruit, to use the technical term, that's, that's, ready, for, that's ready for approval. Okay. okay. I'm a little bit, I, I guess I don't exactly know, Ms. Wintering, how will you do that? It's, the agenda's been approved. Can you add it to the agenda? I, I don't know how oh. we do that. 
Mr. Stratton said um, when we were talking about the discussion on the open forum procedures, that's before the approval of the agenda. Well, I, I, I realize that, however, and I, I'm sorry I'm being technical, but when we approved the agenda, we should have said that we were adding it. When we was the adoption of the agenda, we, we took one off. We should have said that we were adding something to the agenda. Really? I mean, I think we should have, technically. I agree with that. Um, so let me throw out an idea here. Um, we are at 9.50. We have another discussion on the agenda, and then we have executive session after that. So how about if we table for the discussion on this item, task force can continue to tackle that one, and we move on to item U. Everyone all right with that? Thank you. Um, sorry for that confusion. So we'll move to, to, to item U1. And the listing is, is board task forces, and this uh, task force that we just got done talking about here is, is one of those. T1. We have uh, T1. It's, it's not a major issue, but we have T1, oh, the financial report. <laughs> Thank you. And um, I I Russ is here, I believe. He almost had a heart attack. <laughs> the Sorry, report Russ. has uh, no anomalies in it, uh, so it's there and it's presented. So. Um, if you choose to move on, you can, but we shouldn't, we shouldn't skip over. Okay. Thank you. Item T1 is the report to the board, the financial board report that we've been provided in advance. Are there any questions regarding that report? It's not an action item, but we just would have questions. Uh, I, I, can I just make a comment more than sure. a question? Is that uh, being new to the board and trying to enter into the process of asking questions. I feel like on the one hand, I have a million questions about the budget, and I think I shared this with Dr. Southwick, um, but yet entering into that conversation in this format um, uh, doesn't, doesn't feel productive either at this point in time. So I just, I, I just wanted to say, look, I hope there's continued opportunity for that orientation that we had earlier as a board to continue to to meet with folks on the cabinet and leadership and and, and you know learn more about kind of processes for entering into this is a significant budget it's it's, it's, and it's something that warrants significant conversation and I'm just not sure how that's how about if we use this as an opportunity if Russ <laughs> would just give us a real quick what does the rest of the school year look like as far as what to expect in the budget process I think that might be helpful to understand what's ahead of us. Yes, yeah, so we're in the process of formulating our budget for next year. Right. Obviously, kind of we don't know what our revenue is going to be. Uh, that's usually the last piece. But we'll, we typically come to you in May at the May uh, board meeting. We do a budget workshop. And we usually do it at, last year. I think we did it prior to the board meeting. And I present all the funds to you, the operating funds, capital outlay, self-supported funds. So do, would you do a pre-pre-board meeting for those of us who are newer to this process, oh, perhaps? Be more time time. Yep. So perhaps April would be a good time for that one. You mean in this? this no, uh, no, I mean with, with that. Just someday, yeah, that'd be great. Board, that'd probably be better. We can get in the weeds quite a bit better, more. That'd be fantastic. Okay. Thank you. Very good. Right. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Now we'll move on to you, Juan. This is Board Task Force's... Um, we do have some work before the board, and um, so one of the ways to address that is to utilize the, the teamwork of the board to address a couple of items, and one of them was working on this uh, uh, public comment section. 
Um, I guess this will be the first time that I actually mentioned Dr. Fulton in our meeting. And, uh, and that is that, uh, I was going to say for board comments, but I'll use it in my segue, that uh, we're, we're very excited to welcome Dr. Michael Fulton to the district. That was rolled out two weeks ago. There's already, already an engagement of conversation preparing for that, obviously. Um, he, there's dual jobs there where he's wrapping up his role there and also onboarding here. In those conversations, uh, we as a board have some responsibilities to have some things put in place to be ready for that, for that onboarding, and so I've been uh, intentional in having conversations along with Dr. Southwick to plan for that. And um, so I put together an email that I provided to the, to the board, and I'll, I'll share just briefly some of those thoughts And that he and I talked about a lot of different work areas that the board can be helpful to ready his onboarding and, and when he gets here. And um, couple of those would be, um, I, I'd like to see if the board can tackle these, so we won't spend as much time maybe today discussing the ins and outs of those, but just to put some structures together so that these task forces can begin to work with that board, or work of each of these subject areas. So one of them would be in the area of constituent services. And that's a broad term for a lot of questions. And put yourself in the, in the shoes of certainly the new three board members, but also a new superintendent. How does that superintendent best engage and communicate with the district? How do patrons, parents communicate? How do board members help facilitate that? How does cabinet help facilitate that? How much of it's done electronically? How much done visually? How much done video? You name it. So there's a, a conversation that I'd like to have at the board level to talk about what I'm calling at this point constituent services, how to engage in these many facets with the, with the public. Um, couple of questions that I'd posed just to help frame it, you know, what is the chain of communication uh, within the district? Who coordinates and monitors that communication? Certainly I'll use an example of the good folks who spoke with us today. How best do we respond back to their questions, get them the information, uh, record and share with us so we all know it was responded as well as on the website perhaps. These are all some of the things that that, that task force would be, be charged with. Um, an additional one would be in the area of professional services. As Russ just talked about, we're going to be approving a lot of uh, financial items for the coming year, and there's a couple of responsibilities that are incumbent upon the, the board to uh, renew and review the renewal of various uh, agreements and contracts that we have. There's uh, professional services providers that we have, those that work with us on the financial area, those that work with us legal area, et cetera. And so it's not that we're going to be deep in the involvement of the decision-making, but more what is the process that those decisions are made. That's what that task force would be charged with doing. Um, and then there's some work already being done around social media. And uh, some of the board members have already started beginning to address how can we best take advantage of and understand and leverage, but also put protocols around the use of social media, not only so that we individually have ways to communicate, but collectively and then as a district. And I bet our new superintendent's going to want to know how best can I utilize social media as the new superintendent within the district. Uh, Heather Owsley's already been involved in some of that. Thank you for spearheading that, and if you'd like to continue on with that, and we'll get you two more board members to help you with that as well. Thank you. So I'll pause there from that to say, first of all, questions or comments with the, uh, the outcome of perhaps that some folks would like to be involved in each of these initiative areas. Yes, Mrs. Mack. Well, for, um, the... Uh Open Forum Task Force in perpetuity. <laughs> I need to yeah. ask if Reverend Guy and Mrs. Zila will continue on in that capacity. <laughs> um, 
But um, I, I would like to be a, a member of the Professional Services Committee, and I believe, um, Heather, I've already given you information about social media, about the past and where we are currently, so I'd like to, um, I feel like I've done my due diligence on that, and I'm, I'm not going to be on that task force. So. Are you looking for us to volunteer? Yes, please. Um, hmm. uh, constituent services, you can put me on that. Or do we need to, since we have three, it's going to be You can do more than one nine. if you like. Yeah. You're going to have to do yeah. one. Well, I would like to do uh, professional services in addition to the social media, right. if that's possible. And I'll do constituent services in addition to... All right, thank you. Public comment. Do you need a third on professional services? Uh, yes. Uh, yes, both that and constituent services. I would opt for professional services. All right. And social media, we don't know. I, I can opt for um, district committees and. Well, no, so I didn't catch that part. So those are two we're going to hold off okay. on at the direction. So which, okay. which uh, ones do we have? We have two spots on social media and one on constituent services. Okay, and so we need to. So those and are I'll my two. And I'll fill in where there are gaps. <laughs> so, right. So those are the those are the two you need people, and we're each doing two. Correct. Let's see how the math works here, and I'll fill in the difference. So social media has two spots, and constituent services has one. I let you choose. I will. I will. Um, wherever I, I'll go, wherever you, you you need support, I'm happy to do that. All right. How about social media on that one? Sure. Put you there, Mary. Sure. And then I will jump on the other two there. Okay. And we'll do it that way. How's that? Sure. Um, to give clarity there, there were other subjects that were talked about that Dr. Fulton said that he'd like to do at a board retreat with us in April. So I just thought I'd share that as well out loud. And that is the, the subject of superintendent onboarding because there's going to be a 120-day plan that would be put in place to best have him interacting with and engaging with the district on square one. So that'll be something that working with staff and with the board team, and he'd like that to begin out of a board retreat in April. Another one is district committees. His thought was once he gets to also inter uh, connect with the, the broader Shawnee Mission community, that's where he could have some guidance on, on working with us to say where best might a committee or two or three be ready to be discussed as well. So these will be things that will be talked about later this spring, but I wanted to get going on some of these other areas so that we can begin proactively addressing these as the work of the board. Thank you for that exercise to go through that. And you, you, I'm sorry. Yes, go ahead, go ahead. Will, you, um, will there be chairs at that committee or will you? The yes, and how about if I make some phone calls about that? Okay, great. <laughs> now that I have my volunteers. <laughs> Thank you very much for that. And with that, we move to item V1, and that is comments from board members. Yes, this is comment. Um, I was fortunate enough to attend um, the NSBA Advocacy Institute in Washington, D.C. earlier this month. And I won't belabor it because it's gotten late here tonight, but um, it was fascinating to kind of see what our, our parent organization, the NSBA, how they lobby for us in Washington, the, the things that are on their platform as well as ours. Uh, things that are important to them and the people that are in those spots to do that. We also got to um, Senator Moran's office, um, offered a tour of the Capitol for the Kansas delegation that was there. And um, I met at length with uh, Blue Valley and Olathe, had several board members there, and um, it, was, it was good to just 
exchange notes on that, as well as people from across the country. This was a nationwide um, um, institute, and it was it was very enlightening. I think um, <clears throat> one of the things they told us how to talk with our our congressmen and senators, and how to keep it brief, and you have maybe ten minutes of their time. And uh, we went to Yoder's office, Representative Yoder's office, and um, gave us forty-five minutes. So between uh, Olathe Blue Valley and Shawnee Mission representatives there, so that was good. Um, I'm a little surprised sometimes of what he knows and what he doesn't know about our schools here. So we will keep him abreast of things, but. Um, he had several Shawnee Mission graduates and a Blue Valley graduate in his office, so we approve of that as well. But um, it was it was a good conversation. It was a well worth trip, I believe. So thank you for letting me represent you in that regard. Thank you. Anyone else? Yes, Reverend Guy. Um, as a private citizen, I went to the meeting of um, Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America last week. And um, at the end of the meeting, a, a teacher came up to me, recognized me, came up to me, and said she appreciated me being there, and then shared how she uh, was still pretty shaken after the events in Parkland. And um, it just brought home to me that when teachers watch the news footage of that, they're putting themselves in that situation and wondering what they would have done or would do if God forbid that should happen and um, I just want to raise awareness of that I think that's a pretty horrific thing for someone who just wants to educate children to have to think about um, and so I just I guess I just want to say you know recognize that in our teachers and recognize that they're they're dealing with <coughs> some trauma after this as well and uh, this night we've been talking about counselors in our schools and how badly they're needed for students. I, I wish there was uh, more we could do maybe to just let our teachers know, too, that, um, that we know that they're struggling with all of this as well. And so I just want to lift that up. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, Mrs. Mack. And, and our other staff members and everybody in, in those buildings, I, that was well said. I have three quick, I'm going to go really fast. Um, I attended the SMEF, uh, Shawnee Mission Education Foundation <laughs> board meeting on Valentine's Day. And I'm going to go really quickly um, because I forgot my notes. I apologize. But um, they have uh, already, they have a, a record number of grants that were submitted this year, which is incredible, and they've already made the matches. But I just, I wanted to, to thank um, the Education Foundation again. We have a board member sitting here as well. Thank you, Leo, for being here. Um, thank you. For the incredible amount that you do it's really amazing so thank you um to the gentleman chris Roussel, Roussel, who was here about the voter participation um i would love that that would love that to continue that conversation when i was a me member of the pta we would go into the english classes um, in the high school and we would we would be able to pass out voter registration forms i know that's archaic they were on pieces of paper but what we were told um, by the League of Women Voters was that you cannot make anyone fill out a voter's registration form. It is voluntary. You can't make it extra credit. You can't do anything like that. So um, I, I uh, wanted to say that I think it's very important that everyone votes. And I think we do have in our curriculum that we talk about the history of voting. We talk about citizenship. And um, 
anyway, I wanted to address that because Mr. Stratton invited us to address um, the people that spoke in open forum. I wish that they had stayed, especially the folks from Corinth. Um, this is my opinion. I am one-seventh of a Board of Education. But I was sitting on the Board of Education when we laid off over 300 people because of budget cuts. One of the things that we cut were school counselors in the elementary buildings. We almost cut nurses um, because of the financial restraints we were under. I, very few people slept <laughs> during those nights. Um, when, we were, when there was a little bit of leeway in, in the operational budget, we were able to ask our elementary principals whether or not they would like social workers or guidance counselors. And what I remember, what administration told us what, was that principals wanted social workers. Um, there are, they were passionate. I really appreciated what they said. Um, it also reminds me that we have to continue to educate um, our parents that are entering into the Shawnee Mission education system now as parents that there are different silos. And where we can have um, security measures that come from um, bond issues that were passed, which is one silo, we can build buildings, which is out of a, a different silo, which is capital. We still have operational costs that we have severe constraints. I'm uh, if I remember correctly, 85% of our operational costs goes to personnel currently at this time. I 100% agree, personal opinion, we need more counselors. We've been talking about that for years, having more at the middle school, more at the high school. We also need more teachers, especially in our secondary schools that are teaching core academic classes. I know of teachers that have 190 students and their social studies in our social studies teachers in our high school. We have some areas of need. And as we look to Topeka and we're in this legislative session where they have six weeks left and they haven't talked about a school finance formula, these are issues that need to be raised. And I hope we as a board continue to advocate for our students and our employees in Topeka, we need to continue to do that, and we need to ask the public to join us in a strong message to Topeka. Not only support our students, but support our teachers and the rest of our staff, because the number one person to impact a student's life in a classroom is a teacher. And you want to talk about mental and social support, that is a great place to start. Again, this is my personal opinion. Um, but I, I am so thankful for the people that are strong supporters of public education in the Shawnee Mission School District and, wish, and, and hope that they continue to speak their voice in Topeka. Thank you. Dr. Sinclair. I don't know if I should really follow that, Patty, because that was um, – all of these um, shared comments are um, very heartfelt. I appreciate that. Um, I just wanted to maybe add to that a little bit um, that I wanted to thank Dr. Atha for coming back Saturday and spending a whole other day in Topeka uh, listening to the, the researchers who are conducting this cost study and may play a big role in the degree to which we see additional resources added to our school finance system and having those conversations. And one of the primary concerns that was discussed all Saturday as well as a big part of Friday with students' social-emotional needs and how do we account for that? How do we recognize that in our school finance system and get resources so that we can 
as the community address those 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 needs and and the the rise in social emotional needs is not just Shawnee Mission it's it's across the state and and, and across the country so I wanted to thank the um, parents from Corinth and Apache IS for coming and sharing um, and Ray Marsh and Blue Valley for coming and sharing um, their concerns and being very articulate and thoughtful about some very personal um, experiences of theirs and again in brevity just to um, address Mr. I think it was Roselle who was asking about voter engagement which I see all of these tied together quite nicely actually uh, that uh, I've, I've worked with Brenda Fishman at Shawnee Mission East for years she's the teacher there who helps and encourages all 18 year olds to get registered and as a member of SMAC PTA we've been involved district wide in, in working with the high schools and supporting those efforts to um, help students get registered and to recognize that there's absentee ballots and so that I, I applaud Shawnee Mission staff for their degree to which they really make that uh, support that effort for our students and make that a priority in our schools so thank you great thank you anyone else yes Mrs. Owsley um, I'll be really short I just wanted to thank Dr. Atha and Nancy whose last name I can't pronounce Kokenauer yes. for um, presenting during the workshop um, and for inviting uh, KSDE to come and provide information on the supper program. I'm really excited about getting that information and I appreciate all the work they've done on it. Um, and then also I had read an article about uh, that, that came out like three or four years ago when the state of Kansas had initially passed a law saying that it would be okay, that it was legal for um, educators and other school personnel to carry guns since that was one of the topics that was um, raised this evening um, but the insurance the insurance agent for the state of Kansas um, for school districts had come out and said they would drop liability coverage for any districts that allowed it and so I didn't know if there was someone um, that we could confirm that that is still accurate for today that Dr. Southwick you do you have that answer we we're having those conversations right now as we look at at how this thing moves forward or if it moves forward um, so we'll have an answer for that but I would I would add this caveat they're concerned about us having um, drones and the safety issues around drones mm -hmm. and and are having conversations about if we have drones um, what that might cost now, I want to use that analogy that I think guns and safety issues around guns particularly by people that may or may not have had uh, psychological assessments like our police officers do uh, may or may not have the training and then and again are trained as teachers but now have been asked to be protectors causes me great concern um, and um, I've had lengthy conversations with John Douglas about it uh, it is not the answer I've had conversations with Linda Seek about it. It is not the answer. Um, so I want to speak to the parent. We don't believe administratively that that is the answer, that there are other things that we need to do. So I hope she has an opportunity to hear that. It's not the board, but it's myself. I would be gravely concerned about leading a school district that allowed its teachers or other people other than trained officers to have firearms so thank you anyone else board comments 
Last thing I'll do, a couple quick things. Number one, do we have any students that still are with us that uh, stuck it out? <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Dr. Southwick will be glad to sign your extra credit for me. <laughs> Earlier I mentioned Dr. Fulton's arrival. Uh, I can't wait for everyone to get to spend more time with Dr. Fulton as he moves into the leadership seat. Um, there's scheduling being put in place. We as the board put into the contract 10 paid days so that he could spend time in Shawnee Mission prior to his July 1st start date. Those things are being worked out right now, but I just want to let you know that those conversations are being had and we can't wait for everybody to get to know who we got to know in the interview process. Uh, thank you to the new board members. Um, I had to keep reminding myself, this is their second board meeting, a regular board meeting. I mean, the amount of work that you've done since January 8th today is incredible. Um, a lot, a lot of work has taken place. And uh, lastly, our next board meeting is uh, March 26th, and that's after spring break. So I want to wish everybody a, a relaxing and, and safe spring break, and we look forward to getting together on March 26th at our next meeting. With that, I'll turn to Mrs. Mack. Mr. President, I move we go into executive session to discuss negotiations, updates pursuant to the exception for employer-employee negotiations under COMA. Second. It's been moved and seconded to move into executive session for the item stated. Did we say a time? Can we, oh, no, can we did we not say a time. At, oh, can we go on like five goodness minutes? gravy. Okay. Um, because it is now 10.15, according to my watch. 30. 30 minutes. To 10.45 well, p.m. Can I ask this? Can we do it to 11 o'clock? Because we're going to do a, a quick five to ten minute break here. <laughs> and So why don't we do 11 o'clock, if that's okay? That's, that's my motion. All right. Okay. Thank you. Second. All those in favor, please say aye. 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 Opposed, nay. Thank you. And no business after. Yeah, right. no business after.